This is Karen Hunter, and welcome to The Hub. Hi, Nubians. Uh, we are live. Uh, episode one, two, three. Dr. Carr and I were just chit-chatting because, you know, the serendipity, I don't even know if that's the right word. but Serendipity the- is cool for people who don't have a firm sense of belief in ancestors and God. Then you could just say it's chance, but it happens so often that, yeah. It's not chance. It's not chance. There's, there's, something, not spiritual. there's something spiritual going on Um, both on both sides, which makes sense. Yin, yin and yang is a thing, right? I guess. And I know that the African precursor to yin, yin and yang but you know on monday we were talking because you were um you know we have office hours in nubia those of you who are in nubia which we are right now mm-hmm. um and so you were traveling with dr Beatty, and Uraeus and i were scrambling well Uraeus to to find you know something to to put as a space holder and like i'm sending him videos i'm like upload this come out come into the screen tell the people what's going on you know we're like scrambling <laughs> This brother, and, I, and it felt like it was divine, Dr. Carr, because when mm. it happened, it was like, where did this come from? He put up a silent film from Oscar Michelle, which mm. was absolutely perfect because it turned into a watch party for a film I had never seen before. <laughs> and, you know, it's silent. So you're reading, you're, you're, you know, it's a period piece and we are having a conversation. It was hilarious. It was fun. I felt like I was in you know, a giant living room with a bunch of my friends talking about this movie um, that was, I guess, produced a hundred years ago. And it was so special and magical that it could only be divine. And I was like, this this is what happens when we bang up against each other with intention, with uh, a similar, you know, we all are, you know, agree on everything, but we have a similar purpose and a goal, which is for all of us to remember who we are, where we come from, and to put it together so we could all be free. And it was it was just chef's kiss to him. Chef's kiss, chef's kiss. Yeah, no, we were, uh, and, and we'll talk about this in a minute. I, we were coming from uh, a meeting uh, on campus. The college board has piloted, as I've talked about this before, an, an advanced placement course for African, African-American studies, what they call oh. African-American studies. And so um, they have teacher institutes. This has been going over, on for now for over a year. They had a team of uh, academics write a framework. And one of our uh, colleagues and my former student, who's now on faculty at Howard, we were able to hire him. Josh Myers was one of the people who, who wrote the initial draft. And then they brought uh, some of us in, other academics, myself, I'm trying to think of the uh, Linda Villanueva, um, who else? Herman Bennett, um, the sister from down U Texas, Austin, uh, Demia Berry, some few others. We met, and then clusters of other academics similarly met to go through the framework to make suggestions and you know changes, moving back and forth. And then uh, they continued to convene. Folks, they had a bit meeting back in May. I wasn't able to make it here in Washington D.C where they fleshed through. And so it ended up being around 200 academics went through the curriculum and they're getting ready now to roll the course out. And I think it's 80, maybe a few over 80 schools around the country. So the teachers, they're bringing them together 
and they well, we talked about this many you all you know if you're if, if you're watching this and we're in this now in the nubia imbangi in the nubia circle then you heard this monday night because we then jumped in and live stream from uh the cars we were coming back uh into coming back home and so we were there to make some remarks it was myself and mario uh provost at howard uh tony Ruto, and brother um from steve from the college board and so we made some remarks but that's what put us off i'm gonna come back to that in a minute but to get to to, to really the point the issue itself because we have a space it isn't the first space it isn't the only space and it is also adding with the momentum of memory from all of the other spaces that we have had the ones that we have now it we're building a momentum of memory by connecting from our various spaces to use your metaphor prof bringing our bricks we really are constructing something special and so in the genius that you all manifested because i figured I'll, I'll i'll be a little late the reception was supposed to go to eight but invariably most of these teachers most of these teachers were black you know and and, and i was very happy some of them in fact are in here in this space and some of them aren't yet in this space, but they watch in class through the YouTube front porch. And so very interesting. We got into conversations and I started talking with the people. In fact, I don't, let me see. Uh, I may have put it in my bag for something else. I have a copy of the, oh, this is it. I don't think this is embargoed, but, uh, I'll give you a quick glimpse. You know, I think it's embargo. This is the one of the three covers for the AP African American Studies course. It's going to be taught. Showed you a glimpse of that one because Luis Melu Jones is talking with Brother Dan, who's one of the people who helped pick the covers. And this is the. Uh, I'll just show you the cover, the, the front page. This is the Advanced Placement at African American Studies Pilot Course Guide for Fall 2022. They're still working on it, um, and it's fascinating because, of course, there are more curriculum. There are more curricula than people can count. I have many, 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 many curriculum. In fact, Wednesday night at Sankofa, and shout out to all the Nubians who came out, we really had a powerful conversation. Hi, Garima. Holly stuck around. He's usually there early in the morning. He stuck around. We were there till after midnight, but we only did about two and a half hours. Uh, shout out to um, to uh, Chris, Chris Joy, Christina Joy, um, to Michaela, um, Michaela Skerlock. And the people who put together the programming at Sankofa, these are young people who work there and highly stick around and actually made remarks, some of which I refer to today. But um, believe it or not, I'm working my way to within our gates. So, yeah, all the curriculum. So we were there Monday night. This is actually a sister put this in my hands. Uh, kind of Clemens. This is Children of the Sun, classical African centered curriculum. This is their new one. Actually, the. The printer is Paul Coates. I mean, so the planning, scheduling, timeline, children of the sun. I mean, you know, Paul, Paul prints and publishes. So, I mean, this is an extensive timeline. In fact, if I compare this one to this one, yeah. Anyway, the point is this. There are many, 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 many. And when we did the Philadelphia curriculum, um, Dana King, when she pulled us together, myself, Mario Belithia, a few others, to put that framework together that we did that from which in conversation with Philadelphia Freedom School's young people at the time, 2006, seven and eight, the conceptual categories are derived. That's really where we, we generated that framework 
we started that curriculum with a brief essay. It was only like two or three pages on the history of curriculum and instruction and education devoted to the study of African people in the city of Philadelphia and beyond. Because we said we can't, you see, we all know by now, at least my position on it. Anybody coming up saying they the first, I'm probably now predisposed to turn you down in terms of volume because it's simply untrue so much of the time. Right. Now, if you want to say you're making an original contribution, of course you are. We're all individuals as, and make up a collective. So you're saying something we need to hear. But anytime somebody puts themselves out there as the first, particularly when you're talking about the stories of African people, it's almost as if you're saying either you don't know what came before you or you don't care what came before, or some combination. <laughs> so there, none of this curriculum stuff is new. But anyway, go ahead. I was just gonna, that's what's so important about this space for me is that, you know, our goal is to collect all of the things that came before. That's you know, right. you shouldn't want to be out there. At, you, you have to know, just like right. <laughs> Europeans didn't discover any of these places. People were there already. So if they were there already thriving or living and what were they doing? You know, how were they community? You know, how did they form governments? How did they, you know, all of those things are there if, if we care. To, and we have to know we're not the only ones to have done something. We we can't be that brilliant. That like I think about again thousands of years ago, people were doing autopsies and building pyramids and wrote, wrote things that we can't even figure out how to do, like that obelisk, That's like right. that monument that they can't figure out how to do. So clearly, we're missing something. And I feel like the, the, the specialness of this space is that not only are there some amazing human beings. That I'm now extracting. I just had Dr. Jerry on my show this week. Thank you. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, yes. Jay is about to be on the show to talk about um, languages. Like, there's some amazing architects. Like, there are people that are brick, not just bringing a brick, but like we need to extract. And I think they're folk just sitting and saying, "I don't know enough," or I, "I can't," "I don't have enough to contribute." Everyone can contribute because you have a memory, you have a family, you have talk to your elders, and let's come bring it together. But to your point, um, when people say they're the first, that's all commerce driven. And it's the reason why I think this, this this world is failing right now is that we don't respect what came before enough and everybody's trying to be famous and rich and not putting the, the pieces together so that we can be whole. All right, I'd rather be whole. Teach. So that's it. Teach. No, 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 this, this is, and this is, yeah, isn't that something how it, all the synergies kind of converge? They have to for us to make a different world. Yeah, we're listening. I mean, there's a certain humility that comes with listening. That's something Holly said actually Wednesday night when we were saying Copeland. And uh, and and uh, our sister Erica Savage, who, you know, had a terrible automobile accident. 18-wheeler hit her and she had deep traumatic brain injury. Took her a better part of a year. Just she had to relearn how to walk, how to talk, everything. But she was there, she and her partner. And she was talking about the during that, that year, she just... She said, being out of social media, being out of that that fire hose of data and information and, and propaganda. And uh, she said that 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 stillness that comes with being able to be still is something that we should and have to embrace. And that triggered a whole conversation about the nature of being still. And of course, we had that conversation over a year ago, the power to pause. We like, you know, we just have to be still. And I know as somebody who is in perpetual motion most days, you know, 
COVID is terrible. It's a tragedy, and the numbers are going back up, as we see, in terms of, of the spread with these variants. But there has to be, um, during that time, being still was a reset. And this is what came out of it. And it continues to, now that it has taken root, it is now blooming. And this gets right to the point. I mean, Monday night, when you all put, you know, the thing is, okay, well, I'm going to be late, but I, I tell students all the time, for many, I don't believe in show-stopping monkeys. We said, one monkey don't stop no show. Yeah, no, nah, no, nah, no one monkey don't stop no show. And anybody says, oh, you shouldn't compare black people to monkeys. Let's be very clear. Stop thinking like white people. Because when you go to the temple, <laughs> when we go to the temple uh, at Abu Simbel, the rock cut tomb, temp, not tombs, rock cut temples for uh, Nefertari and her husband, Ramses II, above Ramses II's uh, temple with the four huge statues of Ramses, you see this line of baboons and they are with their hands up anticipating the sun as it rises. When you see that baboon with their hand up like that, they're watching the sun. Of course, these are all African societies and you don't see these baboons in greece but you see them in south africa i've seen a baboon climb in the back seat of a car and take a bag of chips from a baby this white baby and they didn't told us don't <laughs> close your, don't let nothing close your roll your windows up and close. and they, you know it's amazing how people can be oblivious and they don't think they need to listen to black people why are you not listening and next thing you know my baby you just seen this baboons just gently taking the chips out of the anyway point is baboons all over africa that's my point. <laughs> but the baboon was embraced by the, the the classical Africans, Nubia, Kemet, Meroe, Aksum. But in Kemet, the, the baboon was embraced for its intelligence. It was one of the symbols of Jehudi. So when we say monkey, you know, don't think about monkeys the way that this warped society that we were drug into thinks about it anyway so i don't believe in still stopping monkey so so of course the, the you know office hours continued as well it should have because it's really for us there us to you know have conversations so we logged in and as we logged in around 8 30 everybody had been watching thanks to this stroke of genius as you say within our gates within our gates of course is the silent film that was produced directed written by Oscar Michaud, the great creative filmmaker, writer, novelist, very important figure, institution builder. And he released it in 1919. It was a direct response to Birth of a Nation. Because remember, uh, uh, Emmett Scott and them boys tried to put together, uh, was it the Lincoln Film Company? I'm trying to remember now, I'm thinking about it. Uh, there are a number of great books on this, but uh, at any rate, they were going to they put together a film called Birth of a Race, trying to respond to Birth of a Nation. Michaud, and there's a number of good uh, pieces about Michaud, this book called Oscar Michaud and his, and his critics, um, Indiana University Press. The author escapes me at the moment. It's an edited volume. Um, there's Hitting a Straight, is it hit? No, that's during the Hurston, Hitting a Straight Lick with a Crooked Stick. There's a good film by Louis Michaud, actually, who worked on that film as well, Tony K. Bambara, about Oscar Michaud. Um, Midnight Lightning. Clyde Taylor worked on that film as well. But anyway, Oscar Michaud does this whole movie about this sister, this educated black woman whose fiance leaves her. So her boyfriend's gone and she's going to build this black school, the school for poor black young people. And so she 
goes about the work of securing funding for the school. And what Michaud is doing is showing the South for what it is. He's got a number of films in this oof. So when you see within our gates, I mean, we could talk about Michaud. We have talked about Michaud. But anyway, the genius of showing a silent film. And I've watched this film several times. In fact, including on cast with people. And what happened Monday night is what happens anytime. I know I've experienced watching it. The commentary from people watching is in, uh, how should I put it? It's really indescribable. I guess that's why I stunt. But it is so rich. And so when we logged in, you know, Karen, I hope you'll share with us a little bit, Prof. Because, see, this is such an important film because it's critiquing race. It's dealing with education. It's dealing with gender politics. It's dealing with colorism. The thing about Michelle, he would not cast white people and put color on them. But the range of black people he had to find to play white people to play net. I mean, I can't even imagine that stream of commentary. We are nope. annotating the film. Go ahead. <laughs> I know this was the colorism, you nope. know, like the dark skinned blacks were the, you know, the sharecropper type, you know, the the poor people, you know, it was like, you know, but even that, you know, the 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 dynamics between men and women, the, you know, the 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 Shylock type character. I mean, it was it was interesting. You know, um, I'm in the chat right now talking about, you know, the the way in which I have conceived this space, you know, and it's it was born out of conversations we've had, of course, over the last two years. But there were two elements to how this became what it is. And then everybody that came afterwards. And the first was, of course, Carter G. Woodson, the father of all things, <laughs> who built his empire with children and them bringing their five cent or whatever and, oh, and helping him right. develop this thing. That was powerful. And then you talked about W.E.B. Du Bois and that hundred year plan. And mm -hmm. I was like, we've never had the time or the lack of interruption talking with Dr. Corey Mitchell this week yeah. um, about how every time black people succeed it's our success that creates the white violence. It's the success that spurs the white violence that create, it's already theirs and bred. But every time we get successful every time we achieve that's when the terrorism comes it's not it's not the fear it's the success that sparks the terrorism so i was like you know so we keep getting interrupted on the way so what would it look like to have a hundred year plan hmm what would it require then you know you and dr senyata talking about that unbroken that broken obelisk and starting over and so those were the things that kind of informed the space so you know, Nubia is not even a year old. People talking about we need think tanks. A little. We got to get the soil right. We still have people thinking in anti-black ways. We still have people who don't see one another as brother and sister. We have people who want the knowledge and they're excited about it, but they won't be still enough to actually get it. Or they, they want to argue and fuss and fight about things that matter not, that will not free anybody, but give them some sense of purpose and, and rightness. It's not about being right. No. It's not about being right. It's about being righteous in, in, in the mission. The mission is for us to get here, not even for us. This That's is 100 right. years from now. People need to know. That's right. So I'm like, yeah, let's get the soil right. Step one, get the anti-blackness out. So that's why we do these classes. It's not even, and in, in, in to your point, you know, we bang up against each other, which creates the perfection. But, you know, I was like, let's get off YouTube. And you're like, no. That's still front porch. People got to come in, even if they're not quite ready for it, because people ain't ready for it. It's like babies, you ain't giving them steaks. They don't got teeth. <laughs> they got to drink that, that mother's milk for a while. But we got to get that 
foundation, the soil right, so we can pour the foundation, right? And the foundation are the ideas and the, and the things. That, and so when you bring your brick, you ain't ready to set it in place yet, right? No, and the bricks got to be made out of the same stuff. So uh, some some of them have to work together. That's right, and that, that's, and that's right. In fact, Oscar Michel, it was nineteen seventeen. He wrote the Homesteader. He's writing novels about this stuff too. I mean, many of his films have this common theme of black people attempting to build, and so all the contradictions are there. The people trying, as you say, trying to scam. The people who don't know what to do, the people who know what to do, but who don't have the connections, the people trying to get stuff from white people, re-leverage or build for ourselves. And meanwhile, to exactly what uh, you and Sister Mitchell were talking about in part, this is all taking place in a field of perpetual violence, perpetual interference. And what we're doing in the best, we hope, in the best tradition and art of education and consciousness raising that acknowledges that kind of stipulates and marks out those violences but does not center them what we're doing is consciousness raising and that's why in the ap class very good educators i mean i've met some incredible people one sister in houston been teaching for 42 years houston independent school district one one class is going to be offered this fall the pilot in the city of houston which is the fourth largest city in the country huge african population and by african i mean african meaning global africa meaning africans born and raised in the united states who came through enslavement whose ancestors came through enslavement meaning africans who have come to the united states from the continent of africa and the caribbean because we know that Houston sits near the Caribbean rim, the Gulf of Mexico, and uh, there are first, second, third generation folk from the Caribbean islands, many of the different islands from Africa, particularly West Africa, particularly Nigeria. So in that city, this sister who is a veteran teacher in a small high school is piloting the course. So sitting there listening with her and the brothers and sisters I met from New Orleans, um, from Philly, from just from all over the country was really time deeply well spent with educators with teachers but what we're doing and what we're doing here is anchored in the thing that it is very difficult for a white curriculum and white curriculum framework to get at which is who are we to each other which is why the Philadelphia curriculum and those conceptual categories that emerged are so important. We have to distinguish between the social structures that we have been pulled into in the contemporary world, the ones that have been superimposed on us, and who we are to each other in those systems. Without doing that, it just becomes impossible, really, to achieve our ultimate critical mass goal, which is to raise consciousness. Once that consciousness has been raised, and as that consciousness is raised, which requires not only acquiring content and information that we may not have known, to quote the great Nzinga Radabisha Heru, who for many years was the president of the Association for the Study of Classical African Civilizations. Just because I don't know what you know doesn't mean that what I know don't count. We all know something. So as we so as we're bringing that something into a space and exchanging and learning from each other and building we're doing all that simultaneously. There is no artificial division between learning and doing. 
And that has to be at the center. But in order for that to be at the center, we have to recognize that we are doing it in a field of perpetual violence that is set, has been set against us because as African people, we were drawn into a modern world system as uh, less than the, def the white definition of human. I won't say less than human because of course that's absurd. But even to say human, to go back to the philosopher, to the writer, Sylvia Winters, this is her new book of essays. As I said, came out, we must learn to sit down together and talk about a little culture. So I'm up there looking at it at the top of that stack back there. The, the concept of human, which really means man. Now I'm thinking patriarchy. Once you accept that, it's a trick bag that you spend the rest of your life trying to negotiate with or fight your way out of. Well, we're, we're in a, that's what we're calling it the renewed normal here. The renewed normal acknowledges that cultures continue to move over time and space and change and, and adapt. But the re in it, the re of the renewed, really speaks to what Aikwe Arma, Remba Ani, so many others have taught, taught, experienced, written, shared, exchanged, which is the momentum, what we're calling here, the momentum of memory allows us to access what we have done before. All the things, the mistakes, the successes, the experiences, and that momentum of memory as we acquire it gives us the ability to intervene in our daily lives and to transform not only our lives, but the lives of every human on the planet who, who has these experiences as well. We're not separating ourselves, but we are not giving ourselves over to, to continue to be figments of other people's imaginations. And so I want to talk a little bit about this week, but in the context of per these perpetual conversations, what we have here is a perpetual conversation. We are having a perpetual conversation. And but before I get into that, I just want um, to, to finish the thought on what happened Monday night in Nubia for the, for the folks who were not in Nubia or not yet in Nubia. That exercise in, because by the, you know, we then logged off and I logged back in when we got back, when I got back here. And then we continued with what we were, you know, some of what we we're going to do. We're going to finish Octavia Butler now next Monday. But that exercise in viewing and annotating and exchanging commentary on within our gates led to an idea that I thought was just spectacular. I mean, talk about displacing. People talk about Netflix and chill. <laughs> no, nah, we don't. No, nah, because this ain't Netflix. So what was it, Professor Hunter? I'm, I was reading the commentary and somebody came, was that you? They came up with this. <laughs> uh, no, I think it was Uraeus. I mean, was but that's the, other thing. that's the other thing. This is such a collective, you know, you, yeah. know, all right, you get our styles tangled, you know, like, which is, there, there's such we a- what we want, really. Because <laughs> Africans didn't sign. You don't see no names on no African statues. Oh, nothing oh, in I was going to say, everybody wants credit for everything. How about that? <laughs> You know, and even you know, I, I hesitate. You're the architect. You know, you know, yes, I, I, I was used to do this, but this doesn't happen without everybody. We were just talking before we came on. Like, I, in my ignorance, it's like I just I need to know, so I'm gonna ask a lot of questions. But it's in in that ignorance which I'm embracing that that the growth happens and it and it's it's blurry. You know, so you know, Uraeus pulling that out of out of his i don't know out of the universe yeah i was, I was like hmm what can we you know and it, it just like sparks the next thing people in there chatting 
And I was like, this is so dope. Should we do this every month? Like, what should it look like? And right. me talking about Netflix, I was like, F Netflix, don't right. bring, don't bring social structure stuff into this space. Nope. You know, so so we're very clear about that. This is did Africans, how did they convene around art and stuff? So, like now that took me down a rabbit hole, but the commentary in the in the chat was off the chain. It was fun, I was, it was hilarious. You know, <laughs> we all, you know, you know how we do. And we talk through our movies, even silent ones. No question. So I was like, this is perfect. Hey, this is perfect. Movie and we talking. It was beautiful. But um, the Misho movies are are made for that. Now, as you I'm thinking, maybe we should we should watch um, Body and Soul. Body and Soul was the one Misho did where uh, Paul Robeson played this crazy preacher and this well-meaning preacher. He was the both roles. It's like a schizophrenic kind of thing. Robeson is ter- it's it is so crazy. I'm saying. So, so I mean, so if we said Nubia and chill, we should now try to figure out something. We need another word. Chill. Chill, chill ain't chill. it. Chill ain't it. Chill ain't it. Nubian trill. <laughs> Y'all trill. You Nubian trill. No, I'm just like, you know, but that, that was the other thing. You know, Tanya Tanya Pinkins brought um oh. you know, Tanya Pinkins conceptualized Misho's this this space for Misha. We we have a Misho space. Right. In, in Nubia. Okay, oh, um, should be the host. And, and we were yes, and, and so she's got a hundred film. We're trying to get all of the films. And, like, we've been working on this for about six months. So this is the thing: what you see is not what you really see. This is what building requires. We ain't telling everything, but yeah. So then I said to I said to Urias, how beautiful! Like it took this m- moment for us to right. know what this is supposed to be. Now you know That's you can have an idea. People just run, but things evolve. It's like you know a nice pot of stew. It oh, it, the longest sits on the stove. The next day, it always tastes better, doesn't it? No question. No question. Look, I glanced at the chat, Nubia and Build. I love Nubia and Build, Nubia chat. People coming up. Right. But Tanya, that's right. I mean, and right. And, and right. It just takes time to do. And this is what we're doing. And we have time. This is what I equate my rights in, um, in the eloquence of the scribes. He says, time should not be our anchoring concern. Getting it right should be. Now, getting and that doesn't mean paralysis. In fact, um, let me see. Yeah, Vijay Prashad has a new book, a conversation called uh, "Struggle Makes Us Human," and it came just came out this year. And you see, struggle makes us human. Learning from movements for socialism. He's talking about socialism in here. A conversation with Frank uh, Barat, but he's got a chapter in here at the end called "Utopia." It's not a place, but a project. And I just want to read a quote that he says here. He says, you see, here's the problem with abstract intellectualism. Because people are often saying, what are we going to do? We talking, what are we going to do? Everybody coming. Here's what he says. It is too easy to stand outside the practical activity of building the future and offer one's criticisms. You might end up with the best criticisms of everything because you have taken a step outside the stream of reality and take the position of objectivity. You've taken a godlike perch. You're judging things against utopia. You say, this falls short, this falls short, this falls short. You're probably right in your judgments because against utopia, everything is going to look bad. You will say, well, why do they have a police force? Why do they do this? Why do they fail in that? All the things you are saying are probably true, but I learned something very early on from Marx. In his 11th thesis on Feuerbach, Marx writes, quote, the philosophers have interpreted the world. The point however, is to change it, end quote. What he's talking about is the intellectual that leaves the stream of reality, stands outside reality, and says, ah, I interpret that world over there. 
He's not saying you can change the world without interpreting it, but he is saying that you have to interpret it from the standpoint of praxis. You understand things best if you are in the midst of changing them. You have to root yourself in the stream of history. You're in a little canoe. You have a little paddle and your little paddle is helping you analyze the currents, analyze the wind in which you're moving as well as the speed of the water. The intellectual must be in the middle of the river interpreting motion. That's why I would say that intellectuals must with great pain analyze the conjecture and then try to find the path out of the conjecture. That activity is beautiful activity. It's difficult because it means you have to make commitments to people. It's difficult because it means you have to make commitments to people. You are to understand the limitations, but you have to find a way to exit our problems rather than judge the world one way or the other. Now, we don't need marks for that. But neither should we shrink, this is always Du Bois's point, from anything that can help us. And so as I was reading that, and I'm going to walk through the week a little bit today in a second, a name emerged in the back of my mind because, as you say, we're making this path by walking it, and the original concept of office hours, at least the way it kind of began to think about it in the beginning of the year, late last year, beginning of the year, was to really just have a space, a couple of hours on Monday when we could gather and have conversation. And that conversation could be animated by the events of the day or the, or the, intervening, or the intervening week um, or something we were reading together and out of conversation of course came the suggestion that we approach something by carter woodson and we ended up with miseducation negro and then we did du bois and then we did dr king and then of course barracoon and now we're grappling with um with octavia butler octavia Stell butler and so it has kind of served a purpose, this anchoring text. And in between we had a little Ayukwe Arma, we had a little Tony K. Bambara. We've, you know, kind of made pauses and kind of had that other format where we kind of just had conversation in general. And in thinking about a potential conversation starter in the in the spirit and in the arc and direction of what we are doing, which is what Prashad is is talking about in that in that passage I just read, being in it as we are changing it and thinking through and, and dealing with each other, because this really is intellectual work. That's why in, in Philadelphia Freedom Schools, very early on, 1999, with those young people, the first year of Philadelphia Freedom Schools, after we did Freedom Summer that summer, we met every Wednesday night and in Philly with all these high school students from all over the city. And we've been doing it now for 20, this is our 23rd. This is 23 years since 1999. And, and our meetings are on Wednesdays. Um, they're still on Wednesdays. And it's been, it's been virtual the last three years, two years, and now Freedom Summer 2022. So uh, 2021, 22, third year now. And so I'm able to make them. And I'm going to talk about that in a second. But in that con con in that conversation, we always frame it as intellectual work. And, and working with the students, we came up with these three ground rules of intellectual work. One is to be present. Not just physically present, but here. Spiritually, mentally, thinking, contributing. Thinking is contributing, but then sharing some of those thoughts means we're present. We are here. Be here. Be here. The second one is to read and write. Annotating within our gates. And remember, we talked about, we talked a long time about annotation a couple of months ago, the function of annotation. In fact, I was quoting from a book on annotation and the cat that wrote the book emailed me and said, oh, thank you. Because again, these are, you know, academic books are books that very few people read. 
it's really part of a class structure, ironically. Brilliant work that each people read and then nothing changes. Well, they get some awards, maybe promotion, maybe a title, maybe they get to come to some conferences that the university or whoever they, the grant people pay for. It's very nice. And then the needle doesn't move in human change, although there's this sense that something is changing because we're thinking about it. Well, this is what Prashad is saying, this abstract intellectualism in some ways. But annotating that in real time, people come away with having engaged an ancestor and uh, uh, art, which in so many ways is so important in terms of our consciousness, the quality of art. And at the same time, through that process of stimulating thinking, consciousness raising, move through the world differently and do differently because everybody here does stuff in the world all the time. So for those of us who have embraced the contribution, the potential contribution of being educators deliberately as a craft, I won't say profession, trying to get away from all that language that kind of speaks to profit and individual gain and more toward language that deals with individual contributions to the collective. So the craft of teaching and learning, learning and teaching, being able to be in that craft really requires constant engagement in the world and then constant withdrawal to contemplate. It's, a, it, it's, it's that type of rhythm. And we know, of course, that the Western education system, particularly the university system, is so um, irretrievably flawed that teaching it's so funny i was just reading there's an article there's a journal out i don't know if i'll be able to pull it quickly because it's in my bag and i had stuffed my bag with all kind of other stuff i was out yesterday i'll talk about that in a minute um picking up some things and let me see if i can pull it quickly because i had it wrapped in here you don't like my books to get beat up so i put them in. oh yeah yes yeah, interesting this is and I, i'm not one that kind of i read across what would be considered the ideological range i don't really care what people's ideologies are. I'm just kind of reading to see what they're saying. There's a new journal that just started being published uh, a couple of years ago, actually during the pandemic, called Culture and Politics Liberties. Liberties is the name of it. And there's an article in here by Jonathan Zimmerman, who I think is still at the University of Pennsylvania. I'm not quite sure. It's called The Quiet Scandal of College Teaching. <laughs> the Quiet Scandal of College Teaching. I hope I didn't annotate this. Yeah, I didn't. Uh, quiet scandal of college teaching. And one of the things he talks about is he talks about how you know, we failed students in a moral sense. And the first thing he says is we haven't evaluated or incentivized teaching as a meaningful or intellectually defensible fashion. And that's true at universities. People say, we value teaching. No, you don't. No, you don't. You increase, you move more and more to, to offshore teaching to deeply underpaid adjuncts who have the same qualifications, in some cases, more qualifications than the permanent faculty. And then you give people teaching awards, but the teaching awards don't translate into much of anything. And then you don't prepare students for teaching and you create a situation where, and this is where I, I just laughed out loud when I, when I, when I, when I heard this, when, when I read this, when Zimmerman writes this, he says, if teaching were valuable, then it would be at the center of evaluation for promotion and tenure. And tenure and promotion is simply not. What's valued is publications. Now, obviously, I think writing is important. Teaching is not important. Teaching, people say, teaching is important. Now, show me, show me. 
I take the rebuttable presumption, meaning you have to show me teaching is important. And you can't, not in evaluations, not in criteria for uh, awards. And of course, all that system, we blow that apart by walking away from it in this space and engaging in the work that we're doing now. Now, I went through all that to say this. Since we last seen each other and I was in Houston, um, you know, at my sister's house and the room where my mom stayed and y'all saw that portrait over my shoulder by my, my dear friend, our dear friend, James Thrillkill who um, James Thrillkill, Thrill from Nashville, great artist, um, went to Vanderbilt University on a football scholarship. His real gift wasn't his athletic talent, isn't his athletic talent. His real skill is love for black community and his skill as an artist. He's a painter, among other things, draws, paints. He passed that on to his children. In fact, they have the skill. But uh, Thrill presented that portrait to my mom. I guess maybe it was her 80th birthday. Um, that was actually a, a portrait of my mother and my sister Gussie and some of her friends. They were in Atlanta at the time when my brother-in-law and sister were living down there. And my mom wanted to take the braids out of her hair. And she was she had her hair braided. So she was taking the braids out. And she was like, oh, Gussie, it's taking me a while. So Gussie called all her girlfriends. They was all over there. And so Thrill took the photograph that somebody took. It may have been Randy took the picture and turned it into a, a, a painting of Gussie and her girlfriends taking my mom's hair down. So that's that's the picture that was over my shoulder. But I spent that evening, um, and I'm gonna go, I'll go through the week quickly and then come back because these are some of the points I want to raise today in, in the brief time that we have. So from the end of last week through Sunday, I was in Houston for the, uh, as I mentioned on Saturday, the 43rd meeting of the international conference of the national black united front shout out to herbert daughtry who's in his 90s now out of brooklyn conrad Ruel, judon boney current chair of NBuff, of course baba uh, kofi taharka who has written a very important little book on operational unity you know one of the things kofi talks about dc native has spent the last 30 plus years in houston uh, as the chair of NBuff, kind of inherited that from some of the brothers and sisters i mentioned earlier uh viola plumber december a 12th movement you think about alambe brath and so many people so many i could name um my man salim adolfo here in dc just so many kofi he and i are age mates we're in our 50s so we're in that grade that now you know these people that made transition it's our responsibility to continue that fight continue that work and there are many of us in that age grade because that's how you continue that work we sat with these folk we followed their orders we struggled alongside them baba mari obadelli queen mother moore you name it so at any rate, one of the things Kofi talks about is when you enter a community or when you're part of a community and you're trying to organize and build, you don't go to people and tell them what to do. You find out who in the community is working and then you visit them and you sit with them. You offer a hand, pair of hands, an ear, resources if you have them, and slowly you begin to be relied upon. It's very simple. In other words, you do. You do first. And we say, that's what we're doing now. We do first. Right? And as you do, people begin to rely on you and they say, okay, you can be counted upon. You come into the space. And then when you want to organize coalition, like the group that, you know, I'm first vice president and Dr. Beatty is the president of, we inherited that responsibility from Zinga Heru, who inherited it from Jacob Carruthers, so many others, the Association for the Study of Classical African Civilizations. It's an association, meaning people who are doing things now work together to do even more together. 
That's why you have the Association for the Study of African-American Life and History. Uh, one of the people working on the AP course, I was glad to see her Monday and Tuesday, was my friend Evelyn Brooks Higginbotham, who uh, was at one time chairing the history department at Harvard University, first woman, first black woman uh, who, to do that. Um, and before that, you know, she's still appointed in African-American history, uh, who did the ninth edition of From Slavery to Freedom with John Hope Franklin. And, you know, we talked about that. Very, you know, in fact, it was funny, we spent part of Tuesday night talking about how uh, we don't think Katanji Brown-Jackson should recuse herself from the Harvard affirmative action case that is coming up. We got some insight from our sister. And of course, her father, Albert Brooks, we've talked about him because Albert Brooks was the editor of the Negro History Bulletin, worked very closely with, was one of Carter Woodson's partners, lieutenants. And after Dr. Woodson made transition, Albert Brooks took over the bulletin. So, you know, while Evelyn missed uh, Carter Woodson by a few years, her father, she grew up in and around all the Woodson's lieutenants, beginning with her father. So, I mean, just having those conversations with somebody, that's mouth to ear. That's community building. So, as Kobe said, the first thing you do is join communities in work, and then you relied upon, and then when you want to build coalitions, you then come and say, what can we offer each other? And as you're doing that, you then begin to plan. And Kobe's got this whole red, black, and green tier of organization. The red is like what he called code red. He said, when we're going to do something together in the community, Let's come together, agree on what we're going to do, do it, and then we tell everybody we did it. In other words, don't announce what we're going to do until we've done it. Once you've done it, you've demonstrated to the community, you can do it. We can go out now and say, this is what Nubia has done. This is what Nubia is doing based on what we've done already. This is what narrative is doing because what narrative has done. But we didn't start that way. We started with the work. We started with, can I press record? And so here we are two plus years later in one, two, three. This is 123, and here we go. We're continuing that work. You know what I'm saying? Go ahead. <laughs> can't hear you. Can't hear you. I muted myself because I'm in the chat, too. I'm doing... I'm oh, I, thought, I thought maybe you were doing a BDP. I had to, I had to resist. No, no, no. Uh, no, 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 no. <laughs> One, two, three. <laughs> I just... I, I, that day, that day, we had a 20-minute conversation about this woman who's today, it's her birthday. And I just, like, the serendipity of that. Yes. Our very first conversation was about Ida B. Wells, not on her birthday, just randomly, because I was, yeah, and today happens to be her birthday. One, two, one, two, three. One, two, three. In fact, man, come on, what I do with Ida's, Ida's diary? I, uh, you know, yeah, exactly. I know it's here somewhere. Well, I put these newspapers down because I was reading her, you know, a lot, well, a couple of things. I'm going I'm to mention her a couple of times today. And if I can't put my hand on it right now, um, I don't know what I did with it just that fast. You know what it was? I was moving too many books around in here looking for other stuff. And oh wait, here we go. There you go. Very nice. <laughs> right. Holly always says it's like I'm doing magic tricks. I keep looking around, pulling books out of nowhere. He said, How do you all these books come from the same place? <laughs> anyway, uh, it's so funny. This, of course, it is, it's alchemy. It's, it's alchemy, right? It's, it's, it's like this, of course. Remember, we talked about this a long time ago. This is the and if you all don't know, you know, we have our archive. Our archive is huge because it's not now. It's not just us on Saturdays. We got office hours. We have all of the rooms. You just heard one of them teased there with Tiny Pinkins on me show. We got the teachers' room. So many other things. Um, and I'm gonna talk a little bit more about one in connection to something I saw a Saturday night in Houston. Um, but at any rate. All of this stuff now is here as soil, as you say, and we just connect and continue to connect, continue to build. And so you remember we talked about this and there's an extensive conversation we had on Ida Wells beyond that called this is the Memphis Diary of Ida B. Wells, an intimate portrait of the activist as a young woman 
uh, the great Miriam DeCosta Willis edited that. Um, she used to be at the University of Maryland, Baltimore County, among other places. And I was just reading, you know, because Ida Wells, this is from when she was in her 20s. I mean, she had gone from Holly Springs, you know, fever had wiped out her family. She had to raise her siblings. They brought them to Memphis, crossed the Mississippi River there, West Tennessee. And she's writing one Saturday night. This is set from Saturday, January 30th. Let me see. It's either 1885 or 1886. It's 1886. So she's born in 68. So 68, 78. She's 28, 27. She says, I'm just going to read a sentence. Friday was a trying day at school. I do not know what method to use to get my children to become more interested in their lessons. And then after that, she's going on to talk about this uh, this dude. I should just read this for fun because I, I encourage y'all to get this book. And by the way, uh, Christina Joy and Michaela and them and Sankofa and Holly as well express gratitude to everyone here, not only for Sankofa, but for the black bookstores. Because after the crest of, and you have to, I, I'll have to drop the link somewhere, the, the Facebook Live they did, because I'm not on Facebook. But uh, they, they, they streamed it on Facebook. And Holly is sitting there talking about the snake oil salespeople two two summers ago who uh, was selling them how not to be racist and he said it in the and in the black people the bourgeois black people they started buying the books thinking how can i not be racist too and everybody was just laughing <laughs> he said but that ain't gonna free us and save us i'm coming to that in a minute there's a theme to all of this but you mentioned out of wells now and bringing her in because she was a teacher grappling with how to teach students so but what he said was and what they all said was during that summer and then subsequently and as we see, there's an explosion now of independent black bookstores. There was an article in the New York Times last week about a sister in Lansing who has opened a bookstore, black women centered. And this young Chinese American woman who has opened one in Chinatown in New York, which has exploded. And they talk about how there are all these new bookstores that are coming up. But the black bookstores have ridden that crest and a few of them have received some shine, but many of them are now struggling and Sankofa is kind of, you know, fighting day by day too. But what they said was, you know, a lot of what we have been doing help keep their doors open. And that isn't just about information and consciousness raising. That's about being people, these young people being able to pay their bills, doing work they want to do. Christina Joy, Paul Coates came through on the 4th of July and she was talking to him and said, I want to be a publisher like you. And apparently Paul told her, well, you know, don't be like me. You need to make money. When you think about Paul, Paul Coates is there, which means curriculum for independent educators can be printed and distributed because of Paul Coates. So we have to, we have to be mindful. So if you're going to get the Memphis Diary of Ida B. Wells, you don't need to get it from Amazon. Because if you saw the Amazon Union tweeted out last week, it's prime week. Uh-huh. This week is prime week. And you know that they extended the hours of the workers in the warehouses and the delivery people and everything. So they crushed them to give people a few points off of stuff that they already lower prices to try to put everybody out of business. So Amazon, hell, this for you. You don't have to go because you're there. You're making it for the rest of us. So don't get this. Get it at Sankofa. Get it at that. Get it from one of those bookstores that we have in narrative in that long list. So anyway, she goes on in this January 30th entry after the only line I was going to read as it relates to education. She's struggling with the same thing we struggle. How we get these young people to get the lesson? And it's before cell phones and the internet, if you can imagine that. But then many of her entries deal with her relationship challenges. So I'm just doing this so you get a sense of how to be well as humanity on her birthday. She says, how to talk with Graham who informed me that someone had reported me as saying any young man I went with ought to feel honored because of the privilege. 
and that whenever anyone was with me, all the young men in town knew it and said of him that he was highly honored. He did not add, although I knew it must be so, that they hasted to tell such an one of the rumor and thus maliciously have been setting all the young men against me and by their cock and bull stories have kept them away for a silly speech of mine, if indeed I really said it, of which I have not the slightest remembrance. This bit of information opens my eyes to some things which while I did not understand them, I attributed them to peak on his part. I now learned them to be premeditated and deliberate insults and my blood boils at the tame submission to them. I simply and calmly told him I had been misrepresented as I had too often been and betook myself off to think. She goes on. She be roasting these dudes. <laughs> at one point she said, if you're scared of me, just say it. I mean, I mean, it's just fascinating. But anyway, she's living her life as a teacher. And this is before she ends up leaving Memphis. And she goes into journalism. We're going to talk about that in a minute, too, as it relates to, to, to um, consciousness raising and the importance of consciousness raising and something else I encountered this week. So Friday through Sunday, I spent in um, in Houston. And uh, shout out, I want to mention an elder here, Jacqueline uh, Giles. Uh, Jackie Broman Giles, who is a graduate of Texas Southern. I'm repping Texas Southern today. Don't be mad at Tennessee State because, you know, we talk about the battle of TSU, right? They're the TSU Tigers too, Texas Southern Tigers. I went to Tennessee State, Tennessee State Tigers. But, hey, Texas Southern, I'm in Houston. TSU is Texas Southern. I get that. And, uh, in fact, there's a very good book, a recent book on Texas Southern, the irony being that the book on Texas Southern was published uh, at a university press. Was it University of Texas? I'm like, we have to have our own. Paul Coates is a publisher. I don't like black institutional histories that are published with white institutions. I just don't like it. I don't care if they got black editors. I don't care if they have black uh, people working there. And I don't care if the black person is the best meaning person in the world. It is the academic mafia that ranks those books ahead of books that are published by black publishers. And of course, Black University Press, Howard had one, kind of gave it away with both hands. But that's not important. But there's a good book on the history of Texas Southern. I, I want to say it's called to serve or passion to serve. I was looking for it a minute ago, but I won't be able to I wasn't able to put my hands on it. Anyway, uh, Professor Giles went to Texas Southern. I remember last week I, we were talking about the Shape Center, uh, Brother Deloitte Parker Jr. And he took us on a tour of the Shape Center. There are two in Houston. And I won't go back through that history because uh, we can talk. We can go back to last week's in class, which we had a real good conversation about that. But she graduated from Texas Southern as a math major in 1966 and went off to New York. She went to New York to study and she was a, a, at a school called Brooklyn Polytech, where she ran into a very important figure, uh, Eugene Deloach. Dr. Deloach was the founding dean of the School of Education at Morgan State University later in life. And he served many years on the faculty of Howard University. Uh, he was one of those people that worked with Andrew Billingsley, the great Dr. Andrew Billingsley, and I've talked about Andy Billingsley a lot, I think. I don't know if, oh yeah, Charles Jarman's book, Andrew Billingsley, Scholar and Institution Builder, Black Classic Press. Paul published that. Conference proceedings from a conference we had around Dr. Billingsley, who he, his wife, uh, Amy Billingsley, still hailing Hardy in their mid-90s. He's like 95, maybe 95 is next birthday. At any rate, um, Dr. Deloach encouraged Professor Giles to continue her pursuit of mathematics. She had a, a master's degree from Brooklyn Polytech, studied for the PhD at Texas A&M, has taught for many years in the Houston Community College system as well as, well as, as taught as Texas A&M and Texas Southern. But we ran into her in the full cafeteria at the Shape Center. 
myself, Brother Ngozi, Brother Juwanza, we, 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 who are from Kansas City, National Black United Front. This, this is later Saturday after we finish talking. And we spent a couple of hours over there just sitting there talking and listening. And these sisters, I'm talking about these, these, these sisters were cooking in there. They got the vegan options. And this is where elders in third ward, many of them come over there to hang out. Remember I told you Deloitte calls it the, the United Nations of the hood. So these sisters, mostly sisters sitting in there, they, somebody hooked up their iPod, they got the music playing, and they came to get us to take us back over to the Shrine of the Black Madonna for the evening session, because we had gone over there as part of the in-buff work. And just as we getting ready to leave and excuse ourselves from these elder sisters who have been schooling us, oh my God, what a lesson we got that day. That's why I got to mention Professor Giles. One of the sisters puts on Stairway to Heaven, the OJ, the long version. And I said, hold on. <laughs> we can't leave. <laughs> now, how y'all gonna say, okay, we'll see y'all in a few minutes. Here we go. I'm in a stairway to heaven. And I'm looking like, what? I'm sorry, y'all. We're gonna be late if we gotta leave right now. We can't, we got to sit here now. And they just sitting there, you know. I mean, come on now. It's you being in community. For human beings, but being a community for black people, it is the best thing. There is nothing better. And so these elders, we, we got caught up because Sister Giles was there. She ordered her lunch. We sitting there and just talking to, you know, listening more than talking to the elders. We're sitting there talking to her. So somehow we got into a conversation. She said, oh, I lived in New York. I said, oh, really? Where? She said, yeah, you know, I taught math. Where? Well, I taught math at SUNY Stony Brook. So I started asking her who she knew at SUNY Stony Brook. She said, well, no, I was at the extension campus in Manhattan. Really? Oh, where's the where was the extension campus? She was in the Teresa Hotel Teresa. I said the same hotel Teresa where Malcolm was and Fidel stayed and Ron Brown's daddy was the manager. She just started laughing. Yeah, she said, What you know about that? See, typically when you know something as a point of entry in a conversation, if you're younger than the gen the first thing you I'm sure you've been there, prof, where you say something and some old head will say, What you know about that? What they really asking is, are you ready to have another kind of conversation? <laughs> You know, so, and, as, and as many people as you've interviewed, I'm so you know, it's that point of entry question. So when she said that, that just opened up everything. She started talking about working with, uh, talk about advanced placement with ETS, which makes up all those tests on, e, on, on AP calculus. She said she had been hired to work there by John W. Work. I said, it can't be the same John W. Work who was at Fisk, who collected all the stories and, and the songs. She said, what you know about that? I said, it couldn't have been him. She said, no, it wasn't him. Said, it was his son. I said, John Wesley Work's son, Junior, was a, was a worked it. She said, yeah, he hired me. So there's the whole genealogy started opening up. And then she started talking about all the things she had done. She had been to Nigeria. She went to Nigeria with uh, the president of the United States, who was on a diplomatic tour and talked to some African people who had then contacted some people who had contacted her. She took these people to somebody she knew in Houston. Next thing you know, she on the she on Air Force One going. Ended up in Abuja, the capital. Then from there to Cairo, because Clinton wanted to talk to uh, Mubarak. And I said, I would have not liked to have been the fly on the wall and whatever he was doing. He's probably taking the bag over there. Shout out to Joe Biden, by the way who went over and kissed the ring of the Saudis on the front page of the papers today. Uh, because when they doing that dirty business, but she on the plane with them. And this was just story after story after story. And now she is Reverend Wright, uh, Reverend Haynes and others. She is a theologian. She's finishing up her doctorate in divinity. 
she said I had she said she had to preach later on this week this past week Wednesday and she took us through how she took John 3:16 and made a mathematical equation out of it that's not a misspeak she said let me tell you how I did it for God so loved the world and then she started identifying the grammatical terms that translate into mathematical terms that he gave his only begotten. See, begotten is a derivative. Let's understand the function of derivative. And then she started, oh man, she, started, <laughs> she literally took a biblical verse and turned it into a calculus equation <laughs> sitting there. But it all started with, they didn't get their lunch and we just sitting in there listening. And so, you know, that kind of, con and then she said, now, uh, y'all going to the shrine tonight? Yeah, the shrine of the Black Madonna in Houston. She said, yeah. And we said, yeah. She said, I'll meet y'all over there. She came that night. Now, I'm supposed to be the keynote speaker. They gave out awards and stuff. But I, uh, you know, I had to recognize her before I said anything. In fact, the brother that introduced me in Gozi from Kansas City was uh, the brother who was one of the two brothers who was with us. When we were sitting there listening to her. And when I said, you know how you say, you know, keep it short. I don't, don't do a whole lot. I said, man, don't even talk about me. So he got up and talked about Ubuntu. You know, as Dr. Wright always reminds us, a person is a person because of people. He talked about her. He talked about Professor Giles, which is what exactly what I want. And then he brought me up and I continued. And we went on into what we're going to do. But afterward, now everybody, you know, people in Houston know her, but there were people who weren't from Houston. A lot of people, in fact, had conversation. That's important. You build in community. So, of course, as I said, I spent, um, I spent, and I talked about this on Monday too, just a little bit, but for those of you who are not in Nubia, um, I spent, we spent Saturday night at the Shrine of the Black Madonna in Houston. The, uh, the leader of the Shrine of the Black Madonna, Jeremogi, which is a term of respect, um, Jeremogi, D, Jeremogi D. Kamathi Nelson. It was so funny because his wife was in, shout out to both of y'all, both of y'all bishops. They, uh, you know, she said, well, you know, my husband's name is Kamathi. I said, well, I can't forget that. That's easy because that's my name, too. It's my Gakuyu name, Kamathi. And um, interestingly enough, when we think about what's going on at the Shrine of Black Madonna, Kamathi Nelson is the presiding bishop of all of the shrines of the Black Madonna. And, of course, the official name of the Black Madonna is the Pan-African Orthodox Christian Church. And there's actually a very good anthology. It's a little pricey. Juwanza Eric Clark did it. It's called Albert Clay, who was the founder, Bishop Jeremogi, Albert Clay Jr. and the Black Madonna and Child. There's Bishop Clay from Indianapolis, Indiana. I think he was born in 1910 or 1911. Uh, came of age in Detroit. Friends with Malcolm X. Elijah Muhammad tried to recruit him into the Nation of Islam. He said, no, nah, I'm going to stay with Christianity, although I do agree with the Black Power, brother. And uh, in fact, uh, Kamathi, Bishop Kamathi was telling me the story. And of course, they have a bookstore. All the shrines have bookstores. You know, there are shrines in uh, in Detroit, Shrine in Houston, the Shrine of the Black Madonna in Atlanta. Many of y'all been to the Shrine Bookstore. We've gotten many books over the years in, in Shrine of Black Madonna. We've had a lot of rituals over there. And uh, now there are a couple of Shrines of the Black Madonnas in West Africa. It's like, wow, really? This is serious business because we're thinking about ways of knowing. Think of that third category, governance, uh, social structure. Who are we to other people? Governance structure, who are we to each other? At one time, the Shrine in Houston had a 300 plus um, unit 
housing complex across the street from the big church, the shrine, and then they took, bought a bowling alley, converted it, and that's the shrine of Black Madonna Cultural Center. Property on who are we to each other? Very important, and they own it and control it. And so you know, the third category in terms of ways of knowing, what ways have we conceived of thinking about ourselves, thinking about reality? The Shrine of the Black Madonna is one of those ways. And they had a few pieces in the bookstore that you can't get anywhere else other than the shrine. And I was very happy to get this one, Shrines of the Black Madonna. This is from Houston, actually. That's Bishop Clay right there. 10th anniversary of the shrine, number 10, national tribute to Jaramogi Abebe Ajiman. Uh, Abebe Ajiman was his African name. And in fact, here's a Here's a bit of a picture of the bookstore uh, you see there as it was in the in one of the rooms that converted bowling alley, this big building that's now a cultural center. This is uh, five sermons from him called Who is Jesus? Five compelling sermons by the father of black liberation theology. Now, what it would really take is our brothers, uh, Jeremiah Wright and freddie haynes had this conversation so i'm not about to stray off into theology i'm just gonna i'm bringing this up for a reason though and i'll talk about that in a second um in fact let me just do that now because ironically one of the brothers teaching the ap class i saw him tuesday night um kamasi hill my brother dr hill kamasi hill who teaches high school uh in the chicago area and also lectures you know has done work detroit public schools he's a detroit guy we were talking about the shrine because he was in the shrine so, I mean, it's crazy how these synergies come up. Again, the governance formation is very different than the social structure because you wouldn't notice unless you're in governance formations. But but I'm bringing up Reverend Clay, as he is often known, because we know that two of the pieces that many people know of from Albert Clay, uh, one is called Black Christian Nationalism, and his first book was called The Black Messiah, The Religious Roots of Black Power, a strong and uncompromising presentation by America's most influential and controversial black religious leader, Albert B. Clay Jr., the founder of the Shrine of the Black Madonna, Pan-African Orthodox Christian Church. And you see, these are sermons. Now, the, the ones I showed you here, those are hard to find because the Shrine published this. These are five, who is Jesus? This was published actually... Uh, came out of the 11th conclave september 1995 they were at the shrine in atlanta and it was convened of course jeremogi a baby ajiman so this is 1995 this is year this is 1960 it's 1968 1969 so 79 89 25 some years later but this is an important book remember i told you he knew malcolm x elijah muhammad tried to get him to join the nation of islam he's got a chapter in here called Brother Malcolm, and he's got one called Dr. King and Black Power. These are sermons. Let me go to page 186 very quickly. Bishop Jeremogi. He said, each year we pay tribute to Brother Malcolm, Malcolm X. It is wonderful to have this opportunity each year to look objectively at the struggle in which we are all engaged and try to see where we have been and where we are going in light of Brother Malcolm and what his life means to us. It is strange how the life of a man takes on new meaning in terms of the changing conceptions of a people. His life means more and more as the years go by. Then he goes on and he compares him to Jesus. He said, I cannot resist the temptation to compare Brother Malcolm to Jesus, the Jesus whom we worship, the black Messiah. The conditions which both faced in many ways were so similar. The conditions faced by Jesus in trying to bring into being a black nation 2,000 years ago were in many ways similar to those faced by Brother Malcolm just a few years ago. Both tried to bring black people together, tried to give them a sense of purpose, and to build a black nation. Why is that important? Again, let me just refer again to the uh, piece that Juwanza Clark edited, Albert Clay Jr. and the Black Madonna and Child. The important thing to understand about this, this question of 
so-called black Christian nationalism. And again, I'm not going to get into theology. It's very important. Something that Bishop Kimothy um, reminded us of. And I was so happy because he is, like I said, his wife brought him in and we were able to sit there for a while and just talk before the thing started. And then we talked for a long time. The thing was supposed to be over, I think, at like 10. We didn't leave it till after midnight. It's very nice when you control space because he got the keys. <laughs> so we sat there and talked and talked and talked. It was just beautiful. Everybody sitting around. And so at any rate, he reminded us, he said, you know what our saint motto is in the shrine? What's your motto? Nothing is more sacred than the liberation of black people. That's the heart of their theology. So you say you got everybody in here, Ephi, you got Muslim, you got people who don't have a particular ordered steps of religious practice, spiritual practice. We ain't here together. It's the shrine of the black Madonna. So, but it says Pan-African Orthodox Christian Church. Yeah, but we bigger than that. There's nothing more sacred than the liberation of black people. That's a governance thing. I don't know how you can get that in an advanced placement class. You can have a document that you could talk about in here because again, and that's very important. We have to, but understand that when you see people, because then Monday when I came back and we were talking, I said, I just came back from Houston. Uh, I was at I was at the Shape Center and uh, you know over at the shrine, the sister I talked about from Houston. Oh yeah, yeah, I was just at the Shape Center. I'm going back over there when I get home. I mean, you can be in a social structure environment and people think they know something about you, but the minute you get into a governance formation, that's when you come out. And when they said there's nothing more sacred than the liberation of black people, I want to end. I just mentioned him because I had to. He said, this is what he said. He begins the introduction with this. This is Albert Clay from 1968, 69. For nearly 500 years, the illusion that Jesus was white dominated the world only because white Europeans dominated the world. Now, with the emergence of the nationalist movements of the world's colored majority, the historic truth is finally beginning to emerge that Jesus was the non-white leader of a non-white people struggling for national liberation against the rule of a white nation. Wrong. The, the intermingling of the races in Africa and the Caribbean, I'm sorry, in the Mediterranean area is an established fact. The nation Israel was a mixture of Chaldeans, Egyptians, Men, uh, what is it, uh, Midianites, uh, Ethiopians, Kushites, Babylonians, and other dark peoples, all of whom were already mixed with the black people of Central Africa, that white Americans continue to insist upon a white Christ. In the face of all historical evidence to the contrary, and despite the hundreds of shrines of, to black Madonnas all over the world, is the crowning demonstration of their white supremacist conviction that all things good and valuable must be white. On the other hand, until black Christians are ready to challenge this lie, they have not freed themselves from their spiritual bondage to the white man, nor established in their own minds their right to first-class citizenship in Christ's kingdom on earth, not in citizenship of the United States. Black people cannot build dignity on their knees worshiping a white Christ. We must put down this white Jesus, which the white man gave us in slavery and which has been tearing us to pieces. Now, we can talk about theology and history and that kind of thing, but what the, the, at the root of this is we got to break out of that social structure concept of who we are who are we to other people a figment we can't be the figment of these other people's imagination even as he mentions that colored majority this is the financial times from tuesday lowest global population growth since 1950 raises economy fears covid pushes europe into decline what does that mean well let's see the global population grew in 2020 and 2021 by less than one percent a year for the first time since 1950 
The populations of 61 countries are forecast to decrease by at least 1% between 2022 and 2050, with low fertility rates combining with better health care to accelerate the aging of societies. Well, Europe's population shrank by 744,000 in 2020 and by 1.4 million last year, the largest fall of any continent since records began in the 1950s. The most expansion? Wonder where that is. Well, it's not Asia. In Asia, Japan's population has been shrinking since 2010. South Korea's fell in 2020, and China is forecast to do the same this year. China's population is forecast to decline by about 6 million annually in the mid-2040s and by double that amount in the late 2050s. And this year, India will pass China as the most populous country. Uh, I'm looking for the most. Who's Where the growth? Where is the growth? Where is the growth? Oh, here we are. Africa. Hmm overtook Asia in 2020 to become the main source of population growth, the UN reports that more than half of the projected increase up to 2050 would be concentrated in just eight countries, mostly in Africa. Now, so you're saying after the genocide and all of the decimation, the 400 years of uh, colonization and enslavement. This is the most. What does that? What does that mean, Doctor Carr? What? What? How does that? Well, I tell you what. Out? It doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that we should be calling ourselves descendants of slaves and foundational Black Americans and wrapping ourselves in a rotten red, white, and blue flag while the world has surpassing everything in the United States. That's what it don't mean. Now, what it does mean is that we are, as we are, the the, the renewed normal. The renewed normal means we must consider our relationship to ourselves wherever we are. And let us go back to our sister out of Bell Wells Barnett out of Holly Springs, Mississippi. Let's go to 1892. She's out of Memphis now and lynched her friends at the People's Grocery. She's in Chicago and she publishes in the African Methodist Episcopal Church Review, which we talked about extensively. Remember, because one of my jagnas, the great Jamie Coleman Williams, we spent a lot of time talking about her after she made transition a few months ago, which led us into Reverdy Ransom and the history of the AME Church. Not going to get into that. But in that same AME Church review that Jamie Coleman Williams became the first woman editor of. Retiring from Tennessee State University, where she was the head of the Department of Communications there for many years. Her husband, McDonald Williams, the head of the honors program. They're these people that raised me. Ida Wells published in the Amy Church Review a little piece called Afro-Americans and Africa. What? Ida Wells? She's talking about lynching. Yeah, she can talk about more than one thing. Who is she to other people? She's the lady to talk about lynching and we've discovered her and we're writing and we've made it. How y'all gonna discover somebody that wrote for herself? Huh? Have you ever asked if there's anybody around who knew her, who knew her family, who knows her family? And I'm not just talking about individuals. I'm talking about whole clusters of people and formations. Go to Memphis and ask about Adabelle Wells Barnett. Go and find out the footprint she left in Chicago to this day. Go to Russ College. Go stand on the porch of the house that she had, which is built in front of the house where she was raised, which is down the street from Russ College. Do what some of us do when you go into places. Ask where the black people are at. Had a conversation with black people. You walk in the Shape Center, go sit with the elders. You might find a master mathematician sitting there. Talk about hidden figures. Ain't no figures hidden in the black community. We know where they are. Hey, them sisters at NASA were beasts. And all them, almost all of them were trained at HBCUs. Here go a sister who was doing the training of the hidden figures. And she's still around getting her lunch. Ida Bell Wells writing about Africa. What does Ida B say? Look what I say. 
she says, let me see. She says, the April number of the review, in other words, the April issue of the Amy Church Review, which had Bishop Henry McNeil Turner, my man Turner, boy. Turner was like, there is no future in this country. Boy, if Henry Turner was alive today. What had Bishop Henry McNeil Turner's letters on the recent on his recent visit to Africa contained also a paper, quote, will the Afro-American return to Africa, end quote, by that brilliant and forceful journalist T. Thomas Fortune. Timothy Thomas Fortune was friends with Ida Wells. She says, Mr. Fortune seems to think that it is the white man only who wishes our race variety to return in body to the home of its ancestors. I know you, why don't y'all go back to Africa? Why don't you go back to where you from? Oh, 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 I think of the two of us, you'd have the much harder time of it. Anyway, whether the Afro-American himself will or no. Viewing the question from that standpoint, the editor of The Age, which is T. Thomas Fortune, that was his paper, The New York Age, would not be the faithful watchman on the walls he is credited with being if he had given any other reply than the emphatic and decided he will not. So Fortune is like, we ain't going back to Africa. Ida Wells continues and she says, the Afro-American as a race would not return to Africa if he could and could not if he would. We would not be true to the race if we conceded for a moment that any other race, the Anglo-Saxon not accepted, had more right to claim this country as home than the Afro-American race. We've heard that argument. She goes on and says, the blood he has shed for liberty's sake, the toil he has given for improvement's sake, and the sacrifices he has made for the cause of progress give him the supreme right of American citizenship. It's 1892. We ain't got it yet. The smoke of the Civil War is still in the nostrils. The Civil Rights Act of 1866, the 13th, 14th, 15th Amendments, they are still four years shy of Plessy. They fighting. Now, that'll be in the AP class. That'll be acceptable, the fight for citizenship. But will this governance conversation Ida Wells is writing in the journal of AME Church Review, well, will that be in? Well, let's see. Let us continue. She says, there will always be to the end of the chapter Afro-Americans here to enforce this claim and wrest from this government its tardy acknowledgement and concession of the same. That's reparations of sorts. Afro-Americans have no desire and cannot be forced to go to Africa. That's what she says. Oh, well then, okay, open and close. We can argue, disagree. Wait, she's not finished. Ida Wells, next paragraph. But the entire race is not sanguine over our possessions in this country. And the object of this paper is to maintain that the right of those who wish to go to Africa should be as inviolate as that those who wish to stay. Wait, what? But Ida, you just said, ha, she goes on and says, there are Afro-Americans who will return to Africa. That there are is proved by the presence in New York City last winter of 300 who had managed to get that far on their journey. Somebody had told them that they would be carried free if they got to New York. Yes, that is absolutely correct. Yesterday, Professor Hunter, I was on with uh, my friend, uh, Nakira Hawk, who of course is part of the Sirius XM family. She's got this global uh, conversation she has. I know her from when she was at Black News Channel before that went left. And Nakira emailed me and said, will you come on 15, 20 minutes and talk to me about the relationship of continental Africans to Africans in the United States and the possibility of going to Africa. Now, of course, I said, sure. So I talked about how we have always been trying to get back. Kasula, uh, you know, Alue, of course, uh, so-called Cujo Lewis, trying to get back because he was taken. We read Barracoon together. Um, Paul Cuffey, I mean, went all the way back. I went back to the first Africans, didn't want to leave. Nobody wants to leave. So a lot of that was black on black violence. People getting ready to gingerly enter this movie called The Woman King. 
But because we read Barracoon, we are already prepared for the complicated politics that we'll see some glimpse of, I assume, with Viola Davis on Netflix. But don't start with the movie. Start with actually what happened, and then that'll make the movie. It won't put the movie at the center. People watching movies for their history got a problem. It's better to watch it than if you ain't got nothing. But, you know, books are available. Even though, as Ida B. Wells said, sometimes it's hard to get people to work. But at any rate, so I'm talking to Nakira because, you know, she's Pakistani. And so I said, you know, but that continues to this day. You've got people, people who travel usually have a little bit more resources than people who would like to travel but don't have the resources. So we started talking about what it means to go back and forth. She's talking about she's talking about somebody who has a U.S. passport, who is Pakistani, who went to Pakistan and who had this kind of, you know, relationship where she said, man, everybody looks like me and something, but I'm not from here at the same time. These are my people and the ambiguities there. And I talked about traveling through the African continent and we and we kind of converged in a moment in the southern part of Egypt among the Nubians. Where we talked, I talked about, hey, if I keep my mouth shut, I got on a galabio, can't nobody tell the difference. And I, many times they greeted me in Arabic, salam, salam alaikum. Uh, they catch the accent, oh, no, I'm not from. Or they go into Nubian, which is a language. And we talked about those ambiguities. But what I said was there are push factors and pull factors. One of the push factors is we always in this country, it's like, where are we going? Anywhere but here. Of course, we talked about that. We talked about Ida B. Wells moving west and Robert Church going west and Booker Washington going out there, Tulsa and the communities that fed those places. Talk about the Shrine of Black Madonna. I was talking to my uh, friend, Dr. Reba Kelsey, the other day, and she was talking to me, reminding me of the fact, because one of the things we talked about uh, with Bishop Kamathi on uh, on on Saturday night, mm, what did I do with uh, Bishop Jeremoby's uh, sermons? Here we are. They own thousands of acres of farmland, the shrine, in South Carolina. It's called the Beulah Land Project. I don't know if y'all can see these, some of the projects, the Beulah Land Farm Project. Now, we were talking about the fact that, you know, the shrine, you know, you ramp that up, you can feed people. And, and we were talking about how the Nation of Islam still has farmland in Georgia. And she said, yeah, that's where a lot of the food that, that, that is sold in the markets, the weekend markets in parts of Atlanta and surrounding areas comes from. So there are black people doing it. And of course, in Nubia, we got a whole collective dealing and grappling with this question of sustainable architecture, uh, uh, su sustainable um, agriculture, and also feeding ourselves, food liberation, food emancipation, being able to literally sustain ourselves. So Ida Wells is very much aware of all that work. And she's talking about black people who are trying to get the hell out of where we are and get some stuff we control. And sometimes that's in the United States. Sometimes that's in the United States. One of the people that was raised on uh, and during the AP training on Monday and Tuesday was Nell Irvin Painter, who wrote a book called Exodusters, which talks about those movements West. Benjamin Papp Singleton out of Tennessee, you know, 1879, so forth. But what Ida Wells is writing about in 1892, that is from a brother called Chief Alfred Sam, Chief Sam. It's called the Chief Sam Movement. John Clark was the first one I ever heard talk about this book, told us to read it. And I sat and talked with him after I read it. Uh, this was a book called, uh, it's still called uh, The Longest Way Home, the Chief Sam Movement. Look up Chief Alfred Sam. Sam is promising these African people, people in the Midwest, people who have migrated out of the South, you get to New York City, we got a boat take you to Africa. I'm ready to go. Ida Wells ain't writing about it from research. She's writing about it from experience. She lived during this period. She continues and says, I'll just read those sentences before that there are Afro-Americans who would return to Africa as proved by the presence in New York City last winter of 300 who have managed to get that far on their journey. Somebody had told them they would be carried free if they got to New York, that somebody was Chief Sam. They were, of course, disappointed and returned to the South. Yeah, there was no boat, the longest way home. 
says the mistake these people made was not in wanting to go to Africa, but in being so poorly prepared in intelligence and finance. There are hundreds of others beside these poverty-stricken and ignorant people all over the country who chafe under the knowledge that what is the opportunity for the European and Chinese immigrant in this country is his disadvantage in no other country but the vaunted land of the free and home of the brave, <laughs> riffing on Valley, if I can hear Fanny Weimer saying that, is a man despised because of his color. As the Irish, Swede, Dutch, Italian, and other foreigners find in this sweet land of liberty, the Afro-American finds it the land of oppression, outrage, and persecution in the freest and most unprejudiced sections in every walk of life, no matter how well-dressed, courteous, or intellectual, he never knows what, when he may not meet with and be humiliated by this distinctively American prejudice and even killed, like in Akron, Ohio, where the damn police chief then told the cops to take their name badges off, not realizing the unintended consequence of that is that all the damn cops are the same, which we know, and now you have given us more evidence of. You think you're going to help them by taking their names off? As Jay Diller said in F the police. <laughs> yeah, we don't hold back. We let go. We don't say, damn, we just say, whoa. In other words, what you are doing is escalating the conflict. Adam Wells goes on and says, he is becoming restless and discontented. We don't say, damn, we just say, whoa. See, the marching might stop. He says, she says, he wishes to enjoy the full freedom and manhood aspiration. Where shall he go? Then Idlewell says, why not? Why should not they return to Africa, the land of the forefathers, the most fertile of its kind, and the only one which the rapacious and ubiquitous Anglo-Saxon has not entirely gobbled? This is 1892, not even 10 years after the Scramble for Africa conference in Berlin. They still fighting in Africa. She said, it's the one place y'all ain't gobbled up where they will be welcomed by their race. Africans don't like African-Americans. Idlewell said they will be welcomed and given opportunities to assist in the development of Africa, such as are not possessed by any other nation waiting for a foothold. That more African-Americans do not go to Africa is because the objectors say Africa is a death trap, that we are not Africans, and that it is a country without organized government, accepted religion or uniform language. Now, I'm going to pause right there. It's 1892. 2020, it's the same damn thing. No, they don't say that anymore. When was the last time you read the newspaper or looked at the news? Africa is a continent of war and child soldiers and famine and poverty and flies in the mouth and give them five dollars so they could live and don't give them no money because they're heathens. And, and in the words of Michelle Lindsay, the poet who uh, Langston Hughes admires so much, mumbo jumbo, God of the Congo, all the other gods of the Congo, here the boom, boom, boom. And all, yeah, 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 his poem, the Congo. It's still the idea. It's the sentiment. It's exotic. Out of Wells is like, Everybody who goes to Africa does not die. That's what she writes. She says, everybody knows of the African or acclimating fevers. And all travelers or explorers agree that with care and attention to diet, changes of weather, and care of the system, the African fever is no more deadly than our southern malaria. Yet nobody thinks of staying away from the south because of it. I love Ida Wells. Ida said the cause of death rate is carelessness rather than fever. All writers again agree that it is only along the low marshy coasts that this prevails. Back in the interior, it is more healthy. She says, the recent contribution to African literature are instructive as to the obstacles to be met, the danger to be overcome, and the way to accomplish it. No man who does not inform himself on any undertaking and decides on the steps he will take is a fit con contribution to the citizenship of any country. He is not only liable, but will fall a victim to his own ignorance in any country. And then she goes on and she talks about why people should go and why 
some people, she says, it may be argued that it is not the intelligent class who wishes to go to Africa. Oh, Lord, class coming in. Ida Wells writes, if this is true, it is discreditable alike to their intelligence and desire for gain that they do not. She said, if that's true, then they stupid. She says, the resources of Africa are boundless. White men of every nationality are braving, quote, the white man's grave, end quote, and growing rich off the simple natives. They go home every three years to recover health then go back to the work of making a fortune. They endure all things in their young manhood for the hopes of affluence in their declining years. And if they die, as die they do, will not their children reap the benefit? She talking about the invaders. Let's go check out Howard French's books, Africa, China, Second Continent, Everything Under the Heavens. Those two in particular, Howard over there right now, researching and writing in West Africa. He's written about this people taking advantage of continental Africans. But then she gets to the point. She says the Afro-American can better stand the climate than the European because of his kinship with the natives. His opportunities would be better because the Republic of Liberia is already a threshold from whence the enterprising and intelligent Afro-American could enter and possess the land. Now, here's the problem. You can't go over there acting like a damn American and with too many Negroes over there in Africa from other places trying to take advantage of Africans. And that's not what we'd be talking about. There's too many continental Africans who are also petty bourgeois making deals with them petty bourgeois Negroes from the diaspora to the disadvantage of the poor everywhere. That has to be stomped out. We talked about Charlie Cobb and notes on returning home from Black World, and that's posted in narrative. She goes on and says, the need of Liberia is the development of her resources. For this, it takes capital, skilled labor, and intelligent direction. As Bishop Turner says, Quote, a man with $300 can make a fortune in a few years, end quote. She says, the captain of the ship which took him over to Africa and which only made 10 miles an hour made this significant remark. This the captain of the ship Bishop Turner is on as he's going to West Africa. This is what the, the captain told Henry Benil Turner and Ida Wells cites it. Quote, the colored people of the United States throw away, throw away enough money for whiskey every year to build 50 ships that could run 20 miles an hour, end quote, that he, and that he, Bishop Turner, quote, had better get them to save their money and build a faster ship. Now we got a fast ship, fast as hell. It's called Nubia. Hey, what's going on, continental Africans? Hey, Africans in Europe. Hey, Africans in Latin America, the Caribbean, in Asia. Hey, Africans from all over the United States. This, this ship faster than 20 miles an hour, ain't it? Ain't it? Ain't it? Ida B. Wells goes on and says, a native African also said to him, quote, if our brethren will not come from America and make themselves immensely rich by traffic, as they might do in a few years, we natives will do it ourselves. White men shall not always be getting rich off us, end quote. She goes on. My point is this. Talking to Nakira on uh, yesterday about this, going back and forth, she said, well, what's the message you would want to leave people with? I said, the message is we are citizens of the world and we shouldn't limit ourselves in any way possible. We should think about ourselves as citizens of the world and we have relationships based on, based on common trauma for sure, but we also have relationships more important and deeper and stronger relationships based on cultural affinities on ties which aren't don't make us the exact same at all but are much more indelible than temporary traumas in recent history and as i said to her a pakistani who is american u.s who worked in the Obama administration who is you know and who was talking about this this feeling that she gets when she's in a place where she's not from but she's from at the same time i asked her and i see you talking about it come back for a second prop i don't know if you don't if you don't mind because uh, I know some people have watched him and watching this uh, Miss Marvel. I talked about it. I mentioned it in passing. It's fascinating. It was fascinating, isn't it? You muted. I just I just invited her on my show because I've been trying to have a conversation with uh, Pakistani. Uh, you know, we have um, one of my 
former students works with us on Urban View. Yes. Uh, Nina, but I've never had a conversation with her. And watching this, the partition, I started watching Miss Marvel and I was like, oh, this is too uh, juvenile for me. Yeah, it's kind of ripping on the, the, the latest several Spider-Man movies. It's kind of like teen driven. Right, yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. Then, <laughs> I, I kept seeing people talk about it. I was like, all right, let me go back because, you know, it's like anything you, you know, and I was just in, in the chat saying, you know, in class with cars about the breadcrumbs. You no want to put a lot of books, some references. It's our responsibility to go down those breadcrumbs that excite us. Not all of us going to have the same no question. You know, thing that makes us lean in. But I was like, let me go back in and see what I'm missing. And after the first episode, I was like, wow. I'm much like Black Panther for a lot of people to imagine a fictional place where it was undisturbed by colonization and black black people and all of the the tribal marks and the, the you know there were there were there were hints of culture and Oakland you know that that kind of brought us together this thing I imagine I'm not Pakistani but it it told a story from the partition to even the the cultural differences and I like that Ms. Marvel's brothers married to a sister how about that Patriarchy, there's, there's religion, and it's all you know wrapped in this superhero thing. It was fantastic. I stayed up and watched all the way to the even final scene, where after the credits, oh, no, 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 no spoiler alert, because some people no, are watching. No, but after the credits, episode six, there's a there's a hint that something more is coming. That's all. Oh yeah. Oh, you know, Marvel got to make all the money now. Yes. Yes. So they're gonna make all the money now. <laughs> what, what, what did you think about it? Well, I thought the same thing. See, I am a, uh, you know, obviously comic book guy. So Miss Marvel as, um, you know, and you know, the movie that Marvel has already announced that's coming up in the in stage four is called The Marvels. So there is the white woman, Carol Danvers, who is Captain Who's Marvel. Inspiring this young lady to want, yeah. This is yeah, how she, yeah, the, the, yeah, she, I was even rejected. I was like, why are exactly. we Exactly. And there's a whole story there that goes beyond that because the first Captain Marvel, in fact, was a Cree dude. Uh, so that's a whole nother story. Yeah, the death of Captain Marvel. That, go, that goes back to the 60s and 70s. And then so when Carol Danvers appears, Air Force pilot, in the comics as Miss Marvel, but then there's another, uh, I'm sorry, Captain Marvel, and there's another Captain Marvel, Martha Rambeau. She is from New Orleans in the comic books. Black woman. Black woman, right. And, and you saw her in um in uh Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness. That's the Marvel Cinematic. See what they what they're doing now is see all the comic book people, well, not all the comic book, most comic book people thumb their noses at the movies. And I'm a comic book snob too. I mean, so I'll be over getting my comic books and they be in there roasting the movies. Did you see it? Nah, I ain't see that, man. So I get it, I get it. But what they have realized, you know, Marvel knows how to make the money. So what they're doing is when you introduce the multiverse. That means any story that you want to tell, you can tell. So it's just another universe. So in Doctor Strange and Multiverse of Madness, you see the black woman, Captain Marvel, but it's another universe because they know that us three cop was like, it wasn't supposed. Remember in Captain Marvel movie, the black one was her friend. And right. so they, and then when you see the little girl, we all look and say, okay, that's, that's Monica Rambeau. No, they're going to bring her in through the little girl. And sure enough, in WandaVision, the little girl is now grown and she gets the power. Okay, this. So the Marvels is going to be the black Captain Marvel, the white Captain Marvel, and the Pocky Man. They together, the Marvels. And so they know what they're doing. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Important. I think, you know, the comic books and even learning that Rod Sterling, 
made the Twilight Zone after the murder of Emmett Till as a way to bring that into our consciousness. Like art is so important. There's so many people that reject you know, comic books. And we've talked about this. We've had a whole class on the power of comic books and how that brought you into even wanting to read. No but what, what I think is masterful is the, the exchange of culture, ideas, music. I was like, not the Brown Jovi. And I tweeted that. And then Brown <laughs> Jovi added me. There's an actual Pakistani group called wow. Brown Jovi. And they were like, yeah, we performed this. And I was like, y'all are real? So, See? I mean, it's, it's bringing cultures together, which is the point. That's the point. We're not separate. We are one. That is the point. No, I love that it. Is, I love that it. is the point. In fact, it's so funny you say that because, of course, as we know, Nakira is married to a Black American. I didn't know that. Yes, she's married to a Black American. They got two. Because I always ask her about her kids. So how are the kids doing? How are your husband? And so she was telling me about her little now boy. You know, made, you know, made, let me tell you, um, because I'm I'm a people snob. You, you're coming to snot. Like, I don't really mess with people too much. Yeah, yeah. I don't even know that. Like, I'm just really not young. No, no it's all good. I'm saying, but the only reason I know that is because, you know, like when they were doing BNC, if they if they emailed me and I had time, I would go on. And you know how you come on before and then they go live and they go after. So, you know, it was talking. It's all, yeah, little girl. Yeah. And we was talking about. And so, you know, just the cutest little girl. I mean, these are. So in other words, it's but, but, a, what I'm saying. You, you, you have, you know, people are like, you know, these cutouts that we see. No question. No question. And, you know, so they, they're avatars for, you know, the system or for the man, you know, and for me, I don't really know what your intentions are. Right. But I know if you have committed your life to being with somebody like us, then, you know, like I just finished yeah. watching Bill Burr. His comedy on, and that yep. one was like bugging. It was amazing. Yes. And then yesterday I found out he's married to a sister. And of got four kids with her. And I was like, because I'm thinking white boy, but there's <laughs> something about him that's touching my spirit. But that's because you're in community with us. Yes. You're in community with us deeply. Yes. So you said something. Thank you for that. And, um, and, that, and, and that's really, actually, I'm glad. No, thank you. Because what you're describing really is the core of that second conceptual category, governance. That we is African people, but it's also out of African people, who are we to ourselves and who we are connecting with. Social structure is about alienation, objectification. It is the theory of Western society. You are commodity. You are to be, but governance is where's is the humanity? Who we are. And that, and that is why it is so hard to imagine any curriculum work. I don't care if it's an advanced placement course or anything else. If you don't start from that, you're basically accentuating the social structure. So the whole framework, and then what you can see, and even in dialogue with these teachers, even in just casual conversation, as we're learning who we are to each other, meaning our humanity, you see how this is gonna easily overflow the boundaries of whatever you're trying to teach. And believe me, you're not going to be able to get a three, four, or five on an AP course by being who you are to each other. Because the, the ultimately assessment drives uh, instruction. And so this whole thing is set up to be to very flip. difficult to navigate. Right, right. So, yeah. And and even, you know, as you're talking about population explosion, and all I was thinking is Africa's the seed. So we're of course going to seed the planet again. No. We I have to, I mean, it's the source of all life. That's exactly right. The continent. And then, you know, I had Chris uh, Jones on, who's running for governor of Arkansas. Absolutely. And rocket scientist. And I was bringing him <laughs> on with another, with another, with, with Dr. Prescott, but she, she got sick. Oh, but, Chandra, yeah. And we ended up because I wanted I wanted them to come together and I wanted I want to sit back and see magic. But he brought this fusion versus fission conversation because you know he he studies nuclear, 
you know, energy. And fusion is the coming together of these atoms to make energy. Mm. It's the separating of atoms to, mm. and that's what nuclear bombs. So that's the destruction. Yep. Through division, you destroy. Through yep. coming together, you have energy. It's the same power. Absolutely. Because, you know, it's not. It's agnostic, but it's in the hands of yes. whether you're here to divide. And then what's that waste when you separate? When you crack an egg, you're eating the yolk, but now the shell is what you know. So I was I was just sitting in community with with him this week, and then understanding we are fusion, which means that we're the source also, and we are the seed. And so we got to bring in every, and everybody's got to see that. So we have to change the language. It's up to us. Yes. Somebody said, you got to save the world again. Yes. We're going to save the world again. Cause it's in us to, we have to. We're going to try. We're the source. You're right. You're right. And there won't be a world if we, you know, there won't be a world if we don't save it. So I'm, which, I'm, is, where, which is where we're going to end up, of course, on Monday night with Octavia Butler, as we finish up Parable of the Soul, those last four or five chapters, you see where the future is going to be if we don't do something. So it didn't just say this is an act of self-defense. This is an act of self-defense. I mean, that's that's brilliant. And of course, here's this brother who should be winning, who should win the governor of Arkansas in a landslide, running against a whole ass hillbilly theocrat, white nationalist, who is about blowing it up because it, at the center of that philosophy is blow it up. We don't care. We don't care. Please understand. I mean, you all saw the uh news out of the state where I came out of my mother's womb, Tennessee. Bill Lee, the governor of Tennessee, in bed with this white boy, Larry Arning, who was the president of Hillsdale College. Remember Hillsdale, y'all? Remember last year when, uh, no, actually it was the end of 2020, after the election, when they released the 1776 report. We are one of the, well, we're the only community that I'm aware of that actually went through the 1776 report, which was spearheaded by a bunch of people from Hillsdale College. Shout out to the handmaid, Amy Comey Baird, who spoke at Hillsdale College commencement. I remember we talked about that then. Well, the president of that college, they're trying to open 100 charter schools in the state of Tennessee, but he uh, was, uh, the governor of Tennessee was at a party where, or a gathering where this uh, white dude, the president of Hillsdale College, was talking about how stupid teachers are. And how going to school and going to teacher education programs, they're stupid. They shouldn't even be teaching. Anybody could be a teacher. Bill Lee laughing, co-signing, and won't condemn the remarks. And now even the white nationalists who run the Tennessee state legislature are repudiating him. Why? Dude, you can't say it out loud. It's just like Clarence Thomas telling you what they're going to do in the Supreme Court. And Alito is like, man, don't, don't. I mean, well, he's trying, he, in, in his majority opinion in the abortion case, he's basically trying to say, don't say it yet, not yet. They ain't mad at Bill Lee. They just mad because he was there and they roasted teachers. And guess what? Many of those teachers are white. So remember the, the red revolution they had in Nebraska. That's a red state. And them teachers was like, y'all don't pay us. Y'all don't pay. I mean, so they had an uprising too. But my point is this whole question of division. This whole question of, as you say, Dr. Jones is saying, when you start splitting the explosion with the same ingredients is what's going to happen. Again, Gerald, the counter-revolution of 1836, Gerald Horn, writing about this. And when you go to Texas, you see it. And this is one of the things I said in the gear, and I can't wait for y'all to talk because I'm glad to know that you're going to schedule her because she hadn't. She said she's going to binge Ms. Marble. She hadn't seen it yet. Everybody telling her she got to see it. So now you'll be one of the first to talk to her after she at the debrief because she. I think she said she's going to watch it this weekend. But um, 
you know, I was saying to her yesterday in terms of Texas, as I just came back from Texas, it says red state because of voter suppression and keeping people ignorant in terms of the power to vote in combination with consciousness raising and do things. But let's be very clear. The state of Texas has the largest number of people of African descent in it than any other state in the union in terms of real numbers. It has a huge continental African population, first, second generation. Of course, that's where Aya Nelly and all her kids are and all the other people, you know, they came on to the shrine. Uh, she brought two, 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 of, two of their children there. It was great to see their, the boys. You know, everybody's there. So this is large West African, particularly West African, particularly Nigerian population and particularly Houston, but also all over the state of that huge state of Texas. There is a huge Caribbean population, Afro-Caribbean population. Because remember, Texas, that part of it is near the Gulf and on the Gulf of Mexico. So you see that population. And of course, there is the indigenous population on both sides of the imaginary border called Texas, now formal border. And when you create a border, this is the first time in U.S. history where the border uh, transcends the frontier. This is an important thing to think about. The, the concept of white nationalism in the settler states was always anchored around the concept of expansion. Well, now they've reached the limits of expansion, and now it has now gone to the border. Once you start turning inward, like we talked about it a minute ago, you have now with you're now withdrawing from reality. Reality is the world. We are interconnected. So this notion of expansion and I love it, fusion coming together, this notion of being together is the only way the species is going to survive. So what I said, you know, to Nayira is, you know. When you see the state of Texas, we know that that's just a map. And you got white people who are so thoroughly, thoroughly raised in and immersed in non-white cultures, particularly Africana, that if you close your eyes and hear Paul Wall, you swear as a black dude, you know, sitting sideways, <laughs> you know what I'm saying, with them candy colored cars riding around <laughs> with the neon signs in the trunk. Paul Wall is a white man married with a black woman. And I'm saying, can he change how he came out of his mother's womb? No. But everything that happens after that is going to be about where he came out of his mother's womb and what he experiences. I said, that is Texas. So if you think you shovel mouth anyway, if you think the governor of Texas, Ken Paxton, you pump, want to uh, prosecute women for going to terminate pregnancies and come back into the state, uh, they had they they threatening rolling blackouts now in Texas because it's shovel mouth bastard and the people who own him probably the same people paying that punk Joe Manchin, you know got they owned. If you think that's gonna somehow stop humanity from rising up, well, it might, it might, it might stop them from doing something we need done. You're not gonna stop them from rising up, but the question becomes, and this brings it all home as we kind of bring bring it together. You know, how do we move when we've had enough? Out of Wells writing in 1892 saying, you know, we're not going nowhere. But if we want to go somewhere and some people should go, if they want to go, they absolutely should have a right to go as much as to stay. You know, we get to make that choice. Now, that we is a matter of consciousness. So, as I said, the weekend I was in Houston, Monday was at the AP thing. Tuesday was the AP thing again. And then Wednesday... You know, we have freedom schools and then we're reading this book. Uh, Bob Moses is edited. Uh, well, he's got he's part of it. Should uh, a quality education be a constitutional right? And so having that conversation with those young people, that grounding, that movement is so important, because, again, if we are educators, we're part of the craft. Those of us who are teachers, 
you know, we have to be in perpetual dialogue. This isn't about withdrawing from the world and writing, withdrawing from, although that's important, withdrawing from the world and commenting, that's important. But in order to be in the community, we have to engage with and be in the community. That's what Vijay Prashad was saying. And so that night at Sankofa for hours with the community, including a lot of Nubians, again, it's good to see everybody who came out physically and then live stream. Near the end, Holly Greenwood was talking about this and, and we, I followed it up yesterday. I went back, went back to Sankofa, had to go through there and do some other stuff. Uh, but in that conversation, something came up. And again, I, I was talking to, uh, to Dr. Kelsey the other day and she was like, yes, we have to do something. We, there has to be a we in order for us to do something. And the question becomes, you know, it has to be informed by something. So when people are suffering, you can reach the limits of your ability to accept suffering. But if the response after that is just to lay out and strike out, that is not revolutionary. It's reactionary. And as Holly was saying uh, yesterday, we were talking, he and uh, um, uh, his son, who is also a filmmaker. And I encourage folk, if you haven't seen um, his film, you should go see this film. It's actually, I think it's on Netflix too. It's called um, Residue. So um, not just Holly as a filmmaker, of course, we know that his wife, Shrikiana Aina Grima, she made a film called Brick by Brick on gentrification in Washington, D.C., and then Marawi Garima, their son, who is a filmmaker, who is a uh, part of the family, the Array family with um, Ava DuVernay. In fact, he worked on a number of her projects, some of her television projects. If you've seen Queen Sugar and some of the other stuff, you see you, some of his fingerprints. It's a beautiful thing to see. Again, this governance collective. So Ava DuVernay is like, you know, well, who, where are our people? Let me see if I can negotiate because I'm here with these in this social structure, but I'm pulling these other people. We're going to build our thing. And we're going to model it on Sankofa. She said that publicly. And so in that work, he did a whole uh, film on a kind of a fictional gloss on him coming of age in Washington, D.C. and gentrification. They just, in fact, had a free screening and talk back at the Lincoln uh, at the Lincoln Center, not Lincoln Center, that's in New York, the Kennedy, the Kennedy Center in, in D.C., uh, on Thursday. But anyway, in those conversations we were having yesterday, coming back debriefing, talking about it, you know, we were having this argument discussion because you know what killed me, Professor Hunter? I completely blanked. It had just, it did. And then when, when they said it, it clicked. How they was talking about Francia Marquez. He said, I'm going to talk about this sister in Colombia. I said, yeah, yeah, what you think? He said, ah, you know, when you, when you are working with the people, you have to make a choice. And sometimes if you choose to go into electoral politics, it might sap you of some of the momentum you had. So it was an interesting conversation, very complex conversation with him. But I'm coming down to this. He said, I remember when we met that sister, I said, y'all met her? And then Marawi's like, yeah, we, we filmed her. She came to the thing in Mexico where they had the indigenous people come with the Maroons who went to Mexico and they had this big meeting. And I said, oh, that's right, y'all did. I've seen that footage. I've seen it. Holly showed me that footage. Francia Marquez is one of the people that he interviewed. They went out there and taped her. And she, man, you talk about on it. You talk about click, 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 click on it. I'm like, yo, that was the sister, the, the, the chocolate color sister who was at the, th yeah. And I mean, just laying out, now she's the vice president of Columbia. And we were talking about whether that gives people hope. There was a sister there who's a Brazilian filmmaker who was sitting there yesterday and we sitting there. Again, this is about community building. This sister's in town because remember that exhibit I was telling y'all about at the National Gallery of Art? It closes this weekend and they're showing a film on abolition. They did a film on the history of the black struggle in Brazil and the abolition movement. And the brother who did it made transition in 2013. He was born in the 30s, but he interviewed all these people. And so they're screening it today at two o'clock at the National Gallery of Art. But in that conversation, it came down to this. You know, Holly was saying, you know, oppressed people don't make revolution. 
What does that mean? That means they're going to fight back. It's going to be a fight. In other words, if y'all stealing elections, y'all lying, it ain't going to be like, well, y'all won. Let's just quit. No, stuff going to start burning. Do you understand why the police chief in Akron told the police to take their name tags off? He said, because our people are being targeted. Man, you shot 90 bullets at that boy. Don't nobody give a damn about you worried about your people being, you know how you stop being targeted? Stop targeting. In other words, but the people who are now threatening the police, it ain't like they're in a study group. How should we think about it? No, this is a reaction. People will be pushed past their limits. Out of Wales, it's like they leaving because it's a push factor. But if you're going to Africa, that's a natural pull factor if we can work it out. It's complicated. We know that. But what Ali was saying, you know, oppressed people don't make revolution. You've got to raise consciousness. And he started talking about Thomas Sankara and uh, Amakar Cabral, Walter Rodney, all these people, theoreticians who have worked that out. We talk about Septa McClark. We talk about Adabel Wells. We talk about women and men who are theoreticians who have gained that theory through practice. I mean, you will hang a neck around Fred, a uh, medal around Fred Gray's neck and Diane Nash's neck, fine, Joe Biden, but please understand that the reason you're hanging that around their neck is for your social structure. But you, to know who those people are, you gotta see them with us. Like when I saw Fred Gray there and his wife there have, at, 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 at the celebration they had, the National Bar Association and the Qs, he's a Q, and, uh, you know, the members of Sigma Pi Phi, the Boulé, say, oh, well, this is class. Yes, yeah, class, but it's also Black people. We are complicated. Diane Nash comes out of the Nashville movement. Her theory is informed by practice. And so we need, this is what Holly was saying, we need these theoreticians. Now, as I said in the few remarks I made to the teachers at the AP thing on Monday night, I said, we worked in Philadelphia to build a curriculum around the people who, when they lose their job, they got to go for a hearing and get fight for their job at the hearing. I said, you have been tasked with teaching a course that will be taught to the people who are the judges at the hearing. I said, there's a bottom up and there's a top down in this. I said, but understand that these are the same people in terms of the conceptual frameworks we have to embrace. Now, whether that's going to happen or not, I wouldn't bet it's going to happen. But here's the thing. We don't have to be concerned about that because we have this. And in having this, it it, it, it it can move into all those other spaces because the people need that and the people have that and the people have to become aware of each other. And as we are having these conversations leading to action, as we are having the conversations, we are doing what we were talking about yesterday has to be done. And all week through that whole process of this happens every week, I'm somewhere every week because the engagement has to be there, consciousness raising. As you raise the consciousness, yeah, oppressed people don't make revolution without some sense and a, of the momentum of memory and awareness. And then you can formulate plans. Nubia is part of that. We have to have the vision. The vision is built from memory. We have to harness. We have to harness all of what we see in order to move forward because capitalism Oppression, this this common oppression we're facing now in terms of the political economy we're in now, the th the reason why Joe Biden just promised the Saudis the moon is so funny, right? Here's the New York Times front page today. For Biden, uneasy visit to Saudi leader. Why? Because he's talking about the journalist who got killed. Is he going to bring it up? Is he going to bring it up? Is he going to bring it up to the crown prince? Because the crown prince is under a fire. So is he going to talk about uh, Jamal Khashoggi? Is he going to bring him up? So they're talking about that, right? New York Times more and more reading like a tabloid. Over here, President yields on climate plans as talks collapse. There were no talks to begin with. Joe, uh, Joe Manchin is a wholly owned subsidiary of energy. 
He's profiting off it. He was never doing anything but stringing along. Then he come ambling his yacht staying ass on to the stage yesterday talking about, well, give me another month. I'm going to give you the back on my hand, punk. You need to break your political back by putting some more people in the Senate. Get Gary Chambers in there. See, if Gary Chambers step up to the mic after you, you're going to hear something. But this is New York Times, right? Let's go to the paper of record for where my money at. The Financial Times. I'm talking about where my money at for the people who got money. By the way, probably I don't know if you saw uh, Bill Gates just put another $20 billion in the Gates Foundation. He said, I'm going to start going down the list in terms of the world's richest people, because even after the divorce, I'm giving all my money away. These people are trying to shape our world. But yes. they're not. Did you see that? Go ahead. And he owns more land than anyone. Like so. But he put money into his own foundation, not to right. others. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And Warren Buffett getting in with him. I'm saying, if we understand. And they said, what are they doing? Okay, to understand what they're doing, you got to go back in time, not forward. You got to go back to the 19th century. When Ida Wells wrote that in 1892, Andrew Carnegie riding high. They was giving more money to Booker Washington. They had the Cape and Springs Conference in West Virginia. Joe Manchin, do you know what Cape and Springs is? I'm sure you are, because you probably dug some coal out the ground in Cape and Springs, you punk. Also, uh, Lake Mohawk, New York. And they had them plant. How are we going to train these Negroes to do what we need them to do? Who's there? The Carnegie's, the Baldwin's, the railroad people, Cornelius Vanderbilt, the Phelps Stokes Foundation, Thomas Jesse Jones. You come all the way up to the 20th century. These philanthropists are literally trying to write the structure that we're going to live in. Bill Gates has ideas. So he wants you to live by those ideas because they're better for you. Meanwhile, we have Nubia and Narrative and Sankofa and the, and the Black Bookstore Network and the Shrine of the Black Madonna and the Shape Center and their co-relatives all over the world. The little places in Africa and the Caribbean. The, the, the little places where we meet. And this allows us the ability to communicate. This ain't the 20-mile-an-hour steamer that the ship captain told Henry, Henry uh, McNeil Turner you should build instead of buying liquor. This is the thing that gets us here instantaneously. And as we build, we can then shape, and we don't need the $20 billion. And maybe we'll get the $20 billion when we have it ourselves or we get pinch off here and there. But that ain't even the objective. The objective, as Grima said, is, is consciousness raising now Here's the New York Times. I, mean, I saw you the New York Times. They got the soap opera story, right? I mean, the, the intrigue, the drama. Well, what does it say here? This is the same story with the money paper. Biden lands in Riyadh after clinching Saudi deal to open all airspace to Israel. Hmm. But I thought this, you know, what did it do to the junk? Man, these people playing geopolitics. The Saudis have peeled off. Remember now, at the center of the real conflict, well, the real conflict's political economy, the commodities, oil, he's saying we're going to get the prices down. Okay, yeah. The political conflict often has at the center the Palestinians. So why is he over there? He's over there because we got less in these tensions. You with us? The Saudis done peeled off. It used to be Palestine was the first thing on the table. Now it's dropping down the list and they're trying to break up the Arab nations. Right now in Israel, there is political battle going on. Bibi Netanyahu ain't dead. He coming back from the grave. But Israel is no is not at the center of world politics like it used to be. The sister from Brazil, I was asking her, is Lula going to win? She said, yeah. And Haile's like, well, if he wins, yeah. But, you know, all politicians, this and that. And she said, yeah. But would you rather have him or Bolonzaro? And so we having a conversation. Would you rather have Francia Marquez or somebody else, the other guy? And it's a real conversation to be had. We can't just vote. And then we did our job. No. Organizing voting is just a tool. We've talked about that. We have to push it ahead. But again, Financial Times is talking about what is the geopolitical situation, and it's the headline. 
And just like when um, Professor Giles went with Bill Clinton and they were in, where was she said they were? They were in Arusha. They were in Tanzania. She there with Clinton and them. Clinton is like, I want to make a stop in Egypt. Do y'all mind? No. So then they flew to Cairo because he wanted to meet with uh, Mubarak. Hazi Mubarak was the dictator in Egypt, been the dictator for Egypt. And he's still alive. They put him on trial after the so-called Arab Spring. The Muslim Brotherhood had a brief moment there. Then al-Sisi come in and they go back to the military stuff. In some ways, what Mubarak was doing. And guess who is now a good partner again? The Egyptians, thug life government. And guess who is over there just coming back? Joe Biden. So, but if you want to understand what's going on, you can't look forward alone. You got to look backward. Go talk to Professor Giles. She'll tell you about geopolitics. If you want to understand what's going on with these foundations, don't look forward. Don't look now. Look in the past. This is what philanthropy does. And if you want to look at self-determination and consciousness raising, well, then you're in the right place because this is where we are building the governance formations so that whatever is going on, we can manage our not only response, but what comes after. Because this unsustainable system is is collapsing. So um, I think that's just about it. I wanted to. Um, yeah, I think. Oh, let me let me make sure here where I wanted to. Oh, yeah. We said before that um, well, we said, you know, every once in a while we would have unboxings. So I knew what this book was. I couldn't um, I couldn't resist taking it out because I want to start reading. This is my friend Leslie Fenwick who used to be the dean of the School of Education at Howard University. Um, she has finally finished her book. I remember many years ago when Leslie came to the freshman seminar class uh, we used to teach at Howard and she debuted her outline and initial findings for this book. That was about 10 years ago. And so it's out now. Um, it's called Jim Crow's Pink Slip. The Untold Story of Black Principal and Teacher Leadership, Leslie T. Fenwick. I mean, just a great sister. Um, Dean Emerita of School of Education and Dean in Residence at the American Association of Colleges for Teacher Education. She's written a book. In fact, let me just, I'll read the, the back. She says, Jim Crow's Pink Slip exposes the decades-long repercussions of a too-little-known result of resistance to the Brown versus Board of Education decision, the systematic dismissal of black educators from public schools. The Supreme Court landmark 1954 Brown decision ended segregated schooling in the United States, but regrettably, it also ended the careers of a generation of highly qualified and credentialed black teachers and principals. In the deep South and Northern border states over the decades following Brown, black schools closed and black educators were uniformly displaced. By engaging with the complicated legacy of the Brown decision, Leslie T. Fenwick sheds light on a crucial chapter in education history. She also offers policy prescriptions aimed at correcting the course of U.S. education, supporting educators, and improving workforce quality and diversity. That last part of the sentence, uh, uh, you know, I, I, in my mind, always think is uh, impossible. And of course, just because it's impossible doesn't mean we don't try because in many ways, freedom is in the trying. So just as, a, just as I engaged with and will continue to engage with the team and the teachers who are doing this AP course, because we have to do something. We cannot do nothing. We must do something. Mm -hmm. I know that the, I'm doing that because this is my base. In other words, what happened to those teachers at those segregated schools? Those were the teachers who equipped the last mass generation that had consciousness. And we are in many ways still living off that last generation. Mm -hmm. 
when we think about the civil rights movement, why, why is it that we always go back to the sixties? We go back to the sixties because those people had more, not, not completely, but more of a, a consciousness as the nature of the immediate threat than we do. And they came of course, out of those integrated schools of the 1940s and third, wait, no, they did not. They came out of our formations. And now that's why I say, what is the prescription, Leslie? Because after the Black Messiah came out, again, Black Messiah, Albert Clay, they're writing in 1968 and then published in 1969. I pulled this book off the shelf because I was just laughing. This came out the following year, 1970. Racism and American Education, A Dialogue and Agenda for Action. Again, ain't nothing new. Uh, Averill Harriman, some of y'all know that name. Harriman, right? And this was something President Johnson, Linda Johnson, put together this commission to deal with education. You see all the participants here. They didn't. They had a meeting, and then they had another meeting. Here's the meeting after the meeting. They had this meeting at, and I know some of y'all up there right now. Probably nobody in here. Maybe somebody in here because Nubia got everybody in there. So are you at? Are you on the vineyard now? It's about that time, isn't it, Professor Hunter? Isn't it time to be at the vineyard when we talk about race? I wouldn't know. Mm. I wouldn't either. But I, I got, I got friends who, you know. Texas, oh, I'm at the vineyard. That's very nice. Uh, are you laboring in the vineyard? Because you know, I, in the Bible, it's, anyway, or, uh, you're summering in the vineyard. Anyway, they met at Martha's Vineyard, this little crew. And anytime I see this name right here, Kenneth B. Clark, I know it's going to be some good stuff in here. Because Kenneth Clark made me laugh out loud. It's the doll man. You know, y'all pick them dolls because y'all love white people so much. Anyway, they talking about black studies in here. Kenneth Clark said, I don't know what black studies are, by the way, because he's really hardcore integrationist. Right. And they talking about black dormitories, black this, black that. They had a meeting to talk about, you know, what should be done to deal with racism in the American school system. Well, guess what? Who found who funded it? The Ford Foundation. And so they have an agenda for action that says, uh, here we go. Specific action recommendations. After they had his long book, this is on page 151. After they had all, and the transcript is it's like reading the Haverford conversation. I don't think I had the Haverford discussions over here. These, these are the blacks who got together who saying this black power people are taking us off. But y'all understand when y'all had them conversations and they found and they funded by the foundations and they're in this sequestered place, you're talking to yourself. I know you think that if you talk to these policymakers, it's gonna make a difference, but all them people you ain't talking to. All them people who in Houston who are sitting sideways with their rims, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Who you look at as unteachable, who if you are Professor Giles, she's been teaching it for 50 years, teaching hardcore math principles to students you threw away, them people not listening to you. And so you have to understand, I understand everybody trying to play their role, but here's one of the recommendations, attitudinal change. The objective of attitudinal change will include curriculum revision on all levels to ensure that the substance of education, particularly in history, the social sciences and the humanities, is made more relevant to the questions and imperatives of social justice and social change. This is 1970. We're creating a pioneering. You ain't pioneering anything. Do you know the history of the attempts to massage people in a political economy to keep them doing what you need to do so you can turn a profit? That goes back to the beginning of this criminal enterprise. For black people coming out of the Civil War and Reconstruction, you see the meetings they had at Cape and Springs and at Lake Mohawk and forward. In the 
30s and 40s, Thomas Jesse Jones, the Phelps Stokes Foundation, they paid for these studies. Man, we come forward, we see uh, my friend Maribel Mobley, her book, White Philanthropy, charts the whole 20th century, particularly around the Carnegie Co And here in 1970s, while the smoke from the fires are burning from the 1960s, they meet up at Martha's Vineyard to talk about racism in America. You know what their objective is? To deal with race, to keep you Negroes quiet. It's nothing about culture in here. Kenneth Dollman Clark talking about, I don't know what black studies are. I don't know what Kenneth Clark is talking about. Dark ghetto. I know Tommy Selby and them won't come after and write stuff about, let me not get in the weeds. My point is this. <laughs> we have the capacity and we have the responsibility to be together, to raise our consciousness. And then we move forward. And that's what we're doing here. Some <laughs> but to move forward, we have to go back this week also, since we're talking science, uh, Webb, the James Webb Telescope. Uh, NASA, 13.5 billion years in the past is able past. to look back 13.5 billion years to project to us today something that happened 13.5 billion years ago. We got work to do. We got to go back to move forward. We can't build right where we are without first building on the foundation of what happened before. And That's people right. did things before us. That's Let's right. remember that. And That's build right. on it. Um, and also, uh, Texas, Barbara, Barbara um, Lee, born today as well as Ida B. Wells. Uh, Lee. The only person to stand up in Congress and say no to war uh, thought it was a, a moral um, proposition to go into Iraq. And the only person with the courage to stand up. Also, yeah. Texas. And in the chat, we're talking about Texas because Texas has the most black people in the entire country. Next to that is Florida. It's no Incidents that Texas and Florida are shook and leading away with leaders, leaders that are taking us, you know, not just back to the dark ages, but they want to destroy us. That's but we right. have the most black people there. You don't think they know that? Of course they know that. And of third is Georgia. But Georgia has a strategy, right? Georgia so has a strategy and racists have a strategy too, though. Yes, yes. So we, so we can't be pussyfooting with these people. No, that's you got a man with whole brain damage. It hurts your marker <laughs> walking around. And these hillbillies going to vote for him because why? Because y'all right. stop trying to talk to these people and organize your people. But will you mention, uh, we should end with your brother. Well, I will mention that the, the, the book I was talking about that I was thinking about, the person I was thinking about, maybe we talk about this next week. The person I was thinking about as going through the week and particularly after Monday night, we were in Nubia and then listening to my high school students and shout out to Anshere Hines and you know, all, all of the Philadelphia Freedom School people, my man's uh, brother, Sharif el Mecki and the Center for Black Educated Development. I love the time I spent with those young people because you can process, you know. And so that concept of groundings kept coming back. Groundings in my mind kept coming back. Groundings. And then, of course, we just put the ball in it yesterday with Holly and Marawi sitting there. I'm thinking that we will. Um, we could, we could, don't say what we will do. What y'all think about this? Let's, let's send this for a week and then we'll finish Octavia Butler. And I'm thinking maybe if we sat with something small, but broad, but also very connected to this conversation we're having today. And of course I was thinking about Walter Rodney and Walter Rodney. Um, there's a new biography, Rodney biography that's out, but rather than deal with somebody writing about him, I was thinking, uh, I don't know what I did with it, but it's okay. I'm thinking about the book, The Groundings with My Brothers, which is really, I'll say more about that next week. I'm thinking about y'all look that up and chew it over if you don't know. 
I sit with it because this is not a book club. This is your office hours where you, you know, where yeah, it's we're... not a book club, but I mean, at the same time, maybe, maybe we don't make it require. I mean, just say maybe that's something I've been thinking about. Yeah, I'm gonna sit with it because again, I like them. The, the great thing about putting a bow on Octavia Butler and even thinking about space, you know, is her, her, her protagonist believed that heaven could be, we, we don't need to wait for heaven. No, you know, that the stars. Are, are there for us to explore. And I think there's a metaphor in that in terms of everyone yeah. waiting for heaven ain't getting there, by the way. Um, yeah. <laughs> Everybody talking about heaven ain't going there. Heaven. Yeah. Nope. Uh, <laughs> but, but there is an opportunity because we have it in us because we're made from the stuff of stars to create the kind of world yeah. we want to live in. We have it in us. We are dark matter. We are power. So, you know, yeah. M mention our, mention our, mention our, our brother though, Jim Thorpe. Do you mind? No, I mean, I just read it, you know, that he got, uh, he finally got cleared, whatever that means to. to what does that mean? Right. Yeah, I'm like. Here it is. Thorpe. I just, okay, Thorpe. wait, let me, let me, uh, let me do the solo. Okay. Yeah. Thorpe restored as sole winner of two gold medals in 1912 games. And of course, now they got him with the straight indigenous person. Look, Jim Thorpe. Jim Thorpe dominated the decathlon. Jim Thorpe, one of the greatest athletes in history is in the victory. Outlook. Okay, New York Times. See, here's the thing about the world that you write about. You can't save yourself by hedging what you say. So when you write Jim Thorpe, one of the greatest athletes in history, and the victim of what many considered a century-old Olympic injustice, <laughs> and the victim of a century-old Olympic... Uh, there, fix it for you. Where's the cop? The co it, ain't a, it ain't a mistake of copy edit. You still trying to, who the hell? Okay. Has been restored. It's the sole winner of the decathlon and pentathlon. Uh, pen, pentathlon, whatever that is. Thank you. Pent uh, pentathlon at the 1912 Stockholm Games. Thorpe, who excelled at a dozen or more sports, had dominated his two events in the 1912 Games in Stockholm, but was stripped of his medals after it emerged that he had earned a few dollars briefly playing professional baseball before his Olympic career. It's 1912. He came back. Remember Jim Thorpe? There's a great book, Native American Son, some other things. You know, he, he made his college bones. Oh, man. This whole thing. Here's a, here's a little, like, book for children called Indian School, Teaching the White Man's Way. The whole, look, this is what the brother looked like before, and this is what it looked like after the, after the white boys got a hold of him. Y'all know the most famous Indian school that became a black school, that would be Samuel Chapman Armstrong, who says the job to kill the Indian, meaning turn this into this. The little school he started for Native Americans, and he had been out in Hawaii, too, messing with them, quickly became a school for black Americans. What's the name? Oh, yeah, Hampton. Anyway, uh, but Jim Thorpe didn't go to Hampton. Jim Thorpe went to Carlisle. This is the history of the Carlisle Indian Industrial School. Indigenous histories, memories, and reclamations. This is um, Jackie Fierce Segal and Susan Rose's book on the Carlisle School. The Carlisle Indians was known to have the best football team, certainly when Jim Thorpe was there. Thorpe gets, it says, the International Olympic Committee's recognition of Thorpe announced on Friday comes 40 years after it declared him the co-winner of both events, but the restoration in 1982 was not enough for his supporters. Who, uh, yeah, who <laughs> did he win or not? <laughs> Shit. I mean, that's like sports history, like military history. Who won, who lost? It's very simple. But the restoration in 1982 was not enough for his supporters who carried on campaigning on behalf of Thorpe, an American icon who is particularly revered in Native American communities. Did they go with this other? Oh, I'm sorry, some children in here. I started to say a word, but I'm not going to say that. Shucky ducky or whatever. 
bullshiggity. Anyway, an American icon who is particularly revered in Native American communities. Let's fix this. A Native American icon who is also revered in some parts of America. Don't be acting like, see, this is what they do. You want to go back and erase what you did to, the, to people and then narrate yourself. This is all about disguising yourself. An American, you're an American icon? Oh, what does that mean? That means now that perhaps Nike or Apple got the rights to his image and can sell you something with his face on it as an American icon. He ain't no American icon. What's Jim Thorpe indigenous name? This is what I'm saying. Look, the Swedish Olympic Committee replied to requests for comments saying, Swedish Olympic Committee would like to quote the Swedish King Gustav V, who said to Jim Thorpe at the medal ceremony, sir, you are the greatest athlete in the world. Actually, I saw that. Did you see that, Professor Hunter? Do you remember that in the movie, the fictional uh, scene where the guy playing King Gustav gives the medal to the guy playing Jim Thorpe and says you're the greatest athlete in the world? You remember, you, you were probably a little girl when you saw it. Y'all remember that movie, Jim Thorpe, All-American? No, I don't. I remember, because guess who played Jim Thorpe? Burt oh. Effin Lancaster. Oh, yeah, white man, the white man, right? <laughs> exactly. Burt Lancaster played Jim Thorpe. And I'm like, really? Really? So, I mean, res his, his native name is Wa-Tho-Hook, which means bright path. Here we go. Look. What's it? What it is again? Watho hook. Watho hook. Watho hook. Oh, here it is. They they got it. Let me see. Watho hook. Bright path. Here it is. Right here. They say bright path strong. A foundation named for Thorpe's indigenous name, Watho hook, has been among the leaders of the efforts to wait. I'm sorry. Let me read that the way they wrote it, not the way I'm saying it. This is what they say literally in the article. Today's paper. Bright Path Strong, a foundation name for Thorpe's indigenous name, has been among the leaders of the efforts to restore Thorpe's status. They didn't write his name in here. Y'all got, come on now. What editor, I'm hopefully Victor Mother and Tariq Panja wrote the name in here. I want to talk to Victor and Tariq. Did y'all put the name in? Yeah, man, but the editor took it out, said we don't have column space. Okay. Look, watch this. This is a time, okay, we're in with this. I'm not going to read the whole thing because he was a member of the Second Fox Nation in Oklahoma, went to Carlisle, as they say. Look, we'll end with a quote from the indigenous people, his people. Quote, this is a time for celebration of Jim Thorpe's Olympic accomplishments in 1912 and of the International Olympic Committee's full recognition of them today, end quote, said Nidra Darling, a citizen of the Prairie Band Potawatomi Nation, whose father was a longtime friend of Thorpe's, end quote. Quote, um, his last quote, quote, it was a long journey to this moment, but a very important journey for those of us in the Bright Path Strong movement and across Indian country, end quote. Indian country, Indian country. You know, you got Indian country in this country, indigenous land. I don't give a damn what the Supreme Court say about police can come up on Indian country and arrest people. It's the day of reckoning is coming. So we we raise, we, we raise, mm, that's beautiful. That's beautiful. So we, we can end with our indigenous can now. Watch the hook. I love it. I just, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm planning some other things to, to galvanize this, uh, codify go, the global majority, and yes. this notion of fusion and bringing all our people back together. You know, I had, had this brief discussion yesterday on my show with one of my hosts about, you know, people coming in here not liking black people, and I was like, well, how, do, how do you expect them 
to uh, see us when what they export is hatred of black people. Yes. You know, if you've been indoctrinated into hatred of black people, no matter where you are in the world and you come here, just like in all mankind, the Russians knowing NWA and talking about all black people being in the ghetto while you're- <laughs> That's crazy, right? <laughs> while your mission is being led by a black woman, the, the dissonance that is required for you to separate that in the hemispheres of your brain to, to not see us is so, I mean, you think about the masterful way in which that has been seeded all over the world. I said, so the work is for us to, to establish the truth. That's it. That's, that's it. it. Yeah. Glass. Establish yeah. the truth. Get tired. We just got to keep. No, that's wrong. That's wrong. That's wrong. We got to put them out of movies, TV shows, all of that, in art and books, comic, whatever. Every place we are, we have to change the narrative, which is what that's we're right. doing. That's right. As my man Black Thought said, it's imperative that we change the narrative. That's right. And we're going to do it for everybody. Absolutely. All right. Well, I'll see you in office hours. I'll see office most of the Nubians tomorrow in Maroon's Medicine Chest. Uh, Dr. Think, uh, think, uh, Jamaica is Jamaica Independence coming up. Is it? I think oh, Sonia yeah. said something we, about that. We, we going to Jamaica. Uh, we go. We going. Oh, hey, look. <laughs> we got to see what Jamaica because Sonia said something about it. So I'm thinking we might have to cross back over and do some okay. more Jamaica. Jamaica's coming up. Hey, you all, look, we know we, we live in, well, the two of us living in the United States, we are citizens of the world. We know that. And thank you for the global majority. But we, you know, we, we, we going, we, we're building stuff in. And that intro class you mentioned at the beginning, I still been taking around the edges of it, but we're going to, the intro class we load here, which is just going to be the first of many classes. That was that, awesome. That well, what, what he's talking about is it's going to be an intro to Africana studies in Nubia uh, yes. coming up, I think in the fall, but yeah. you know, that's, so, but you know, no, 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 no. I'm, I'm still what I'm, what I'm not stuck on. But what I still need to think through is assessment, so people can kind of gauge where they are. Because okay. uh, unlike, and we're even trying to get accredited uh, so that that people get. Ooh, so now that's that's going to be a one thing I know they didn't think through with this AP class is, if you score three or above with an advanced placement class, you get college credit if you transfer it. What will an AP African American Studies class do? For students who will now not take African American studies in college. Now I'm saying they didn't think through it, but maybe they did because I know the history of American education. If if you're getting radicalized at college, maybe we can dial this back to the high school level and take that out of the equation. But this is the only thing happens is though that you get rid of the students who took the AP class. The rest of them unwashed Negroes that would be like a uh, hunter and car. We're going to be taking the class. Unintended consequences. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> but we got Nubia, so no matter. <laughs> All right, love you immensely. Uh, Family, we'll see you in the Nubian streets. And um, I'm just gonna post, I'm gonna put this image up just because I want y'all to. All right. Oh yeah, you you gotta tell us what that is. Okay, you know what? Nope, we're gonna be quiet. Say that, say that. Love you. Love you.